This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Hopshop Aberdeen. Hopshop Aberdeen are a local Aberdeen FC supporting business passionate about supplying you with the finest in craft beer. With an extensive range running to over 500 individual lines sourced from the finest breweries in the northeast of Scotland and from all over the world, make Hopshop Aberdeen your first stop. Shop in-store at the West Hill Service Station on Straight Road where... If you fancy yourself as a bit of a barman, you can use their two-tap chilled growler station to pour your own fresh beer, or you can hit them up online at hopshopaberdeen.com. With fast local delivery and next-day UK delivery, you won't have to wait long to crack open a cold one and settle in to watch another Don's victory. A bit slight of foot there. It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 20 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott, and joining me this week, as always, it's Gavin Baxter and Graham Steele. How's it going, guys? Fine, thank you. You know, coming on this show this week, if um, if finding any kind of like positive outlook is the goal, then this podcast in a way, the podcast itself is Jota, and the three of us, we are Jack Gurr. I personally take offence to that. The Jack Gurr bit. I don't even know where to go with that. It's another busy episode this week as we cast our eyes over the 2-1 defeat against Celtic at Celtic Park. And with no women's match to review this week, in the wake of their SWPL1 fixture against Partick Thistle being postponed, we'll take our regular look at the young team and our loanies and their performances in the last week. And part one of the show is going to be closed out by our preview of the upcoming league doubleheader as Livingston and St Mirren make the trip north on Wednesday and Saturday, respectively. And in part two, we're delighted to bring you the latest in our line of exclusive, in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present with a true legend of the club, a man who joined Aberdeen in the summer of 1988 and made 290 appearances for the Dons, winning the cup double in the 89-90 season, named the 88-89 PFA Players Player of the Year before being inducted in the 2019 class of the Aberdeen Hall of Fame. It's the one and only Theo Schnelders. But first, Celtic 2. Aberdeen won SPFL Premiership the 20th of November 2021 at Celtic Park. And following a tumultuous week in the wake of the controversial defeat at Tannadice last time out, manager Stephen Glass made three changes to his starting 11. Jack McKenzie missing out with injury, Dean Campbell dropping to the bench, and Funzo King Ojo suspended following a farcical week where everyone, including resident village idiot Bobby Madden, confirmed the decision to send Ojo off at Tannadice was wrong but nobody actually bothered their arse to do anything to rescind the yellow card in question and free the Belgian from suspension. Johnny Hayes, Lewis Ferguson and David Bates all returning to the starting eleven. And a point of note, the failure of either Mackenzie or Campbell to make the starting lineup, meaning that the Don's proud record of having a youth academy graduate in the starting lineup for every competitive game since the 30th of August 1947, a run stretching for 3,483 games ground to a halt. The altar that Jack Gurr died on. The Dons kicking off in a 4-2-3-1 formation as we all look forward to seeing what Kevin Clancy as the appointed SFA idiot in black this week would break out from his box of tricks. And it was Aberdeen who started the brighter culminating in a cross ball being held by Hart 
only for Ramirez to bump into the dandruff-free stopper, resulting in a lengthy period of injury time. The Dons pressing Celtic high at the park and not giving Celtic a moment of peace on the ball. But then Celtic began to find their feet. A kick off the ball by Kyogo at Bates, completely missed by all the officials. No doubt, a red card any day of the week for anyone else. Celtic shortly began to twig that giving the ball to Jota one-on-one with Jack Gurr was probably the best move. It began to shift the ball early to the George Michael wannabe. And this paid off on 20 minutes. McGregor this time getting the better of Gurr far too easily. Cutting the ball back to Jota, who finished past Lewis to make it 1-0. And it looked like a long afternoon in the East End was on the cards. The Dons reacted well, though. Watkins beating Cameron Carter-Vickers, who might be wishing he hadn't joined the club that playing horizontal stripes, before Juranovic had to make a hasty clearance. Watkins then forcing a decent stop from Joe Hart as Aberdeen threatened and then the Dons grabbed an equaliser via the penalty spot after referee Clancy clearly took a leave of his senses by awarding Aberdeen an incredibly soft penalty kick, which Lewis Ferguson dispatched while sending Hart the wrong way. And the equaliser seemed to have rattled Celtic, taking them 40 minutes to launch another attack, Welsh heading wide, and the Dons saw out the four minutes of injury time to head into the break all square. As to be expected, Celtic came out for the second half anxious to make a fast start and Aberdeen saw out two quick corners at the expense of an injury to Dylan McGeech, which saw Dean Campbell take to the field. On 54 minutes, a corner found McGregor on the edge of the box and his powerful drive was well stopped on the line by Ramirez taking the full brunt of the ball on his chest. And on the hour mark, the Dons conceded the latest in a long line of laughably bad goals. A fine save by Lewis from Abadab broke to Hayes, whose attempt at clearing the ball smashed off McGregor into an empty net. Scott Brown, for the second time this season, pulled up with what appeared to be a hamstring injury and was replaced by Teddy Jenks, as Marley Watkins also departed for the forgotten man, Austin Samuels. A good save from Lewis from a Ralston header kept the Dons in it, and as the game entered the final 10 minutes, Aberdeen began to search for an equaliser against a nervy-looking home side. A good break saw the Dons flood up the park in numbers, but Hayes took the completely wrong option, hitting a speculative effort from 25 yards that ended up about 15 yards wide of the post. A mazy run from Jota ended with his effort hitting the post, and Lewis once again did well to deny Kyogo in the final minute of three that were added for injury time. Time ran out, the Dons slipped to a third defeat in a row, continued to sit in eighth spot, five points off the bottom of the table, with every team below us in the league with at least one game in hand. And that leaves us now with a record for Stephen Glass. It's played 28, 1-8, 5 draws and 15 defeats. And with the following fixtures running us up to the winter break, Livingston at home, St Mirren at home, St Johnston away, Hibs away, a doubleheader of Dundee and Rangers at home and Ross County away. It's going to be interesting to see where we enter that winter break and what that might mean for our season. Gents, your thoughts on this afternoon? Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I didn't watch the the game I've seen the highlights but again it's, it's another defeat I know unfortunately the sad state of affairs that has been our recent years at Celtic Park is generally defeat is what you would expect so the result in isolation 2-1 you could look at that and think oh well you know it wasn't too bad we were close but yeah it's another defeat and another just laughable goal the De Gea's clearance I guess you could say these things happen and they do, but it's absolutely classic that would happen to us. We didn't even get the bonus point for the data. Yeah, we didn't win the data today, I'm afraid. Um, Like Graham, I was not able to watch the game, but I've sat back and watched some extended highlights of it and the data kind of 
implies, well, the data shows what the highlights showed where, yeah, a game were pretty overrun um, in, in, in sections and, you know, Celtic not having to do much to carve us open. And as you say, it's two really bad goals. It's, you know, circumstances are what they are. And we probably didn't expect much more. And on the face of it, 2-1 looks okay, but it's another defeat. And it uh, sets up for a really big doubleheader coming up this week. Yeah, I mean, I thought what was interesting, so I did watch the game. At least, at least one of us did. <laughs> I suspect that the extended highlights probably reflect, to be fair, the game as a whole. Um, I was quite surprised to see a start in the 4-2-3-1 again. I thought we would stick with a back three. The the four at the back, we saw it earlier in the season and we saw it again today, was leaving our fullbacks horrendously exposed against uh, against the wide men of Celtic. It didn't take Celtic long to click up on the fact that Jack Gurr is not up to much and... Like I said in the in the in the review of the game, within the first fifteen minutes, they kind of clicked that that was the ball for them uh, over to Jota on the, on the left hand side for them and get him to run it. Gern Gern struggled big time uh, with that. I saw I think Willie Miller on the radio had said that he actually thought we defended quite well. I think we were desperate at times. There was a lot of people throwing themselves in the way of shots, etc. Certainly in the first half, I actually thought McCrory and Bates actually at centre half did okay first half. I didn't feel that we were overly threatened through the centre of the park uh, via Kyogo. All the threat was coming from from down the flanks. I'd said at halftime, I thought we would maybe switch to a back three. Going forward, actually, I thought we caused Celtic quite a few problems again, but I think that's more due to the fact that Celtic aren't much cop at the back. And they're definitely, as we saw in the home game against, uh, against Matt Batodre, you can get at this Celtic team. And it was a shame we couldn't get Watkins and Hedges in particular more involved, certainly in the second half, because in the first half, when they got the ball down and ran at Celtic, we looked threatening, but we just looked hopelessly exposed at the back time and time again and it felt like it was just going to be a matter of time until Celtic scored we got we get fortunate the penalty kick is soft to say the least but given the run of form we've had in recent weeks with referees I'll take it any day of the week it's a good penalty by Lewis Ferguson going at halftime 1-1 but I think everybody would still have been expecting that Celtic are going to come out the traps it's going to be a bit of a back to the wall you'd imagine which is not necessarily how it turned out um probably because Celtic did score relatively quickly in the second half the goal itself I know people say well these things happen for me I can't for the life of me understand why Hayes is trying to clear the ball across the box you know as a young footballer what you're always told is never try and pass the ball across your own penalty box and okay I know that there's an exception to that you can obviously do it when you've got time and space to do it but in that scenario there I don't understand why he's just not hooking it up the touchline rather than try to clear it up the centre of the park where there are players on rushing fair play to McGregor he's chased it down but it's just entirely typical the way our season's been that again that ball could ricochet anywhere when it comes off of McGregor and it happens just to land straight into the centre of net and there's no fault attributed to Joe Lewis there he's made a good save from Abda before that I think I tweeted out about it as well after the game I, I saw a lot of people being very critical on line again and I understand the frustration and I understand it because it's a culmination of bad results again it's three on the spin if you remove that little run of three games we had against Rangers Hearts and Hibs it looks even worse I think actually we're it's 11 losses and sorry eight defeats I think in the last 11 I think is roughly what the form looks like I understand all that there seems to be a lot of people who were getting very hit up about performance today and I think I'd said it let's be honest and this isn't a glass in glass out McInnes in, McInnes out, Calderwood this or whatever. For me, it was just an entirely typical Aberdeen performance at Celtic Park in the last 20, 25 years where we go in, we, we sit in, we inevitably concede fairly early. 
we maybe scramble ourselves back into the game somehow and we end up losing out and we never really look like we're going to get back in the game again. And it looks like a narrow defeat on the face of it, but entirely typical of a lot of recent performances at Celtic Park. Um, and it's one of those funny ones. I think a lot of people went into the game today fearing the worst. You know, we saw a lot of people talking about this could be something to threaten the McGee 9-0, for example. And as Gavin says, in the face of it, 2 ones still a defeat. It's not a 9-0, obviously. Um, there are defeats and there are defeats. But for me, it just felt like it was entirely typical of the way that we end up playing at Celtic Park more often than not. I don't even think we talk about. I mean, we could talk about segments of the game. I think we kind of covered it probably in the, in, in the review. To be honest, I thought I thought we started the game okay, got in about Celtic, pressed them out of the park, made them look a bit unsettled. Then they got into it. Then they clicked on the Jack Gurr scenario. We never really looked for for as much as they got up and down the line and as much as they got in behind our fullbacks. I never really felt that they were really really th- properly threatening us. I thought we still looked comfortable. Cross balls were coming in. I thought Bates and McCrory dealt with a lot of them well. Lewis similarly did pretty well. Felt like we were probably overrun a little bit in the centre of the park. It's probably one of Scott Brown's quieter games in recent weeks. Um, you can insert your own conspiracy theory there if you want, I guess. Big issue again is the fact that we end up with injuries. So Brown looked like a hamstring. I believe the managers refer to it as cramp in his post-match interview. Well, that's interesting as well then, because he went off against Celtic with cramp at Pataudry, as I recall, and then made a pretty prompt recovery back again now I don't want to be casting aspersions but that's for a man who seems to be as fit as he is that seems suspect to me in the slightest he'd have cramped twice and they both happen to be against Celtic but there we go obviously McGee going off injured is a potentially a bit of a worry because he, he I thought he was doing okay when he got on the ball today it was good to see Lewis Ferguson back thought Ferguson the first half faded second Ramirez did what Ramirez does put himself around tried to chase down lost causes. Really good block from um, the shot by McGregor. Watkins did well first half, fell out of it second half. Hedges, I thought, was pretty poor across the piece. Jack Kerr um, defended him last week. There was, he came in for a lot of criticism last week um, from people on Twitter for his performance at Tannis. I thought at Tannis he did nothing wrong last week. He didn't really deserve any sort of um, criticism last week. Uh, today's the absolute opposite. He was absolutely horrific today. Um Okay, he's coming up against a, a decent player in Jota, but basics just not down at all. And Johnny Hayes, I think it was just a classic example of the fact that Hayes is, I think his best time is been and gone. That's a pretty quick summation of my view about, about the game today. I guess from um, from watching it mainly through Twitter, um, it appears it's kind of a fairly similar story to the game at Pataudry with Celtic, um, where probably getting overrun, um, and then we get ourselves back into the game, fortuitously or not. You know, you get the equaliser, and I'm looking at the Celtic backline as we speak, and it's it's not great. And James McCarthy's done very little since he's arrived. So you're just frustrated that we can't go on and maintain the pressure instead. From the sounds of it, we just, you know, felt lucky to be 1-1 at halftime. We went back out there and just sat in, offering very little in the way of a threat, and... As you say, when you do that against Celtic, it's inevitable that either they're going to create, you know, a moment of magic, a good team move, or just by the sheer volume of the ball in our in our area, something like a ricochet is going to happen. And it's just, yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. I'm sat here feeling almost kind of sorry for Jacker because this is a guy that would not get a game for any other SPL team. Oh. He wouldn't get a game for Cove Rangers. I don't disagree with you on that. And yet he's been 
put into a situation where he has absolutely no business being. And this is one of the main chief reasons why I'm concerned that I think we'd all agree there needs to be a major reshuffle of the pack in January, if it's possible. And my concern is I don't have really any faith in the recruitment team to get that right if they think someone like Jack Gurr is fit to play in the SPL. I guess on that point, the recruitment team as it stands now weren't in situ when Jack Gurr was signed. So you can't really lay Jack Gurr at the door of Darren Mowbray, for well, example. Well, I'm not, I'm not laying at the door of Darren Mowbray. I'm laying at the door of the collective, which people that are involved now will still be involved in that recruitment process. Yeah, that well, that's a valid point. That's what I was going to make. So I agree with both of you in that January is the sort of first proper window, if you like, with the structure in place. So we've just got to sort of ride out to see what happens there. But if our understanding is correct in that the manager has the final say on the signings, I don't think I'm being unreasonable when I say that Stephen Glass signed Jack Gurr. So yeah. if he thinks that's the kind of guy that can do a job for Aberdeen, that is alarming. The, the only sort of crumb of comfort I take from that is with the structure in place now, there should be some sort of veto or sense check or validation that actually no, Stephen, that guy's meant you're, you're not getting him. I know you get a say in the signings, but we're, we're overruling you here. So maybe I have to see how that plays out on the recruitment piece. On the performance, all I would say is the way you've described it and having read the review and stuff, it's it's kind of the way a lot of games have gone this season. We're in the games, but we're not, if you know what I mean, you know, we're, we're in there. We're not really competing. We're not really looking like scoring. We're not necessarily getting overrun. And then all of a sudden, inevitably, we make a mistake and we're one down. You think, well, we're never getting out of this. And that kind of seems like how it went today. I think it's a pretty fair description of last week against Dundee United. And to be honest, with the odd exception where we have just been rank or actually quite good, that summary pretty much covers most of our performances this season, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I guess to an extent, I think. So a lot of this, a lot of performances this season, we've dominated possession, you know, and all that good stuff without ever actually really looking like we're doing anything uh, that we're going to threaten to score a goal. Like I said earlier on, for me, I'm seeing a lot of people tonight again, like I say, being that was a shocking performance and this, that, and the next thing. And like I say, I think you could interchange any manager we've had in the last 20 years, with the exception of Martin McGee, because we didn't concede nine today, that it was a very similar performance to what typically happens at, at Celtic Park with us. And probably Ibrox to an extent as well. I mean, okay, under um, under McInnes, under Calderwood, we had those occasional victories at Celtic Park. But it's not as though we went down there every single game and really went toe-to-toe with Celtic at Celtic Park. A lot of the time we've been very passive. We sit in, we try to keep it tight. That goes out the window after about 15 minutes and then we have to try and scramble our way back into the game. I can think of numerous occasions where that type of game has played out. And it was it, you could have interchanged that game today with, like I said earlier on, the vast majority of our performances at Celtic Park in the last 20 years. And and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be very different. You made a good point as well, Gavin. There is a tiny little bit of me tonight has some sympathy with Jack Gurr. And it's also on the basis that I'm not entirely sure why we changed system today. Um, we've seen it already through the course of the season that when we've played with a back four, it has left our fullbacks really badly exposed, whether that fullback is Calvin Ramsey and Jack McKenzie or whether it's Johnny Hayes and Calvin Ramsey or whether it's you know Funzo Ojo playing it at, at right back or whoever it is playing in those positions. We've seen it time and time again. And do I think we would have been 
ripped apart quite so often down our right-hand side today if Calvin Ramsey was playing? No, I don't, because I think he's a better football than Jack Gurr. But do I still have a concern that there's a very good chance that Celtic would have still tried to expose Ramsey and McKenzie if they were playing today in that formation, kind of similar to what they did at Pataudry earlier in the season? Yes, yes, I do. And I'd be concerned that they would have probably still overrun us in that situation. I was just going to say that was what happened with McKenzie and Ramsey on the pitch at Pataudry. So that is an alarming point in terms of the way that, the, frankly, the management team have approached the game and seen what happened at Pataudry and not taken any kind of appropriate measure to address it. That for me is almost like the biggest concern I have about today again is the fact that we've decided to change formation. I don't really understand why because I, I still think the three is probably our best setup. Certainly in a game like today, I think it absolutely would have been. You'd have at least allowed Gurr to hopefully not be quite so badly as exposed as he was. And to be frank, Johnny Hayes defensively today wasn't up to much cop either. And I feel like he's probably getting off with a lot of a lot of it because everyone's focusing on how bad Jack Gurr was. But both our fullbacks today were, were poor, and that's being polite about it. And you're right. That, to me, is actually a, a coaching-slash-tactical issue, and I, for the life of me, I'm not entirely sure why we went the way we went today. It does seem mad when you you repeat a formation that got you into bother with your best players of the right and the left, and it didn't work. And then you're like, right, okay, we've basically got the substitutes in today who are not as good, but you know what? Let's just pick the same system and expose them to the same deficiencies, but they're not of the same quality. I just I cannot make any sense of that. It's not even a personnel issue. It's not even as though we were forced into it because we didn't have the personnel to make a three work. We could have easily played with a three today. Um, we're no issue at all with the personnel we had available to us. So I, I just, I, I fundamentally don't understand that. And, this is me now starting to get into the position where I'm starting to be deeply concerned about whether our management team have actually got the acumen to to see what's happening and to sort this out. Well, the uh, that sample size that we picked out at the beginning, well, it's not we, we haven't picked out, it's what the sample size is. It, it doesn't make for good reading, does it? I mean, it's not good reading. And it? There are, there are a whole host of mitigating circumstances that you can put in play here. Uh, I know that you guys are maybe less you know happy to, to do that. I still think that with the number of injuries, et cetera, suspensions and stuff we've had, there's an element of mitigation in there about our form. But I, you I'm know, struggling to take that at this point of the season. Are we saying that the teams above us have had their first 11 week in, week out? That's absolutely not the case. I, I get you. I get where you're coming from. We've not had you know, a run of, say, a couple of months with what the three of us would at least say is our best 11, and let's go and see what we can do. I, I'm just struggling at this point to be constantly fishing for excuses. Everyone else has injuries and everyone else, well, with the exception of the, the couple of teams below us who have a game in hand, there are plenty of teams above us who are dealing with this and we just seem incapable. Now, maybe that highlights the just woeful quality on the bench, which in itself is an issue that the club needs to address. I'm just struggling every week where we're, we're claiming this mitigating circumstances, but he's got a squad and he's not using it properly or it's not good enough for a combination. I'm not too sure where I sit, but there has to come a point where we just have to accept this isn't working rather than constantly trying to find a reason to justify it. Yeah, I, I think to be fair, I don't think I'm trying to justify it. I think I'm just trying to say, look, I, th- I think there are some, I, I think that there are arguments there to say that we've not been able to play our, what we'd perceive to be our best 11 or anything close to it for a consistent number of games this season to even allow them to even get together in jail properly and understand what they're all meant to be doing. 
But you're also right at the same time that there's enough. If you look at our starting lineup today, there's enough experience and enough, well, I'm going to say enough experience. Quality is maybe out, you know, the jury's out on that one to an extent. There's enough experience on that pitch starting the game today to to deal with a game like that. With the exception of the wing backs, it's maybe, maybe our strongest team. It's probably not far away from it. Um, we obviously still need to sort out exactly what our preferred back line is when everyone's fit. But yeah, I, I, this is me the first time I've probably been like this all season where I'm starting to have some real doubts about the management team, the coaching team, and their ability to, to, to identify and to see what's going wrong and to frankly do anything about it. And I don't know if part of that is just because we've, we've signed players in the summer and the managers now realize he doesn't really fancy them anymore. And so we're kind of stuck with a particular group of players until we get to January. Or if it's just a case that they just can't get a tune out of them. I mean, like you say, you look at that starting lineup today, and it, I would argue, like, Gav, you're right. Probably even with the exception of the right back spot, Johnny Hayes would probably get into most teams in the Premiership, maybe with the exception of Hearts, maybe Hibs. He'd still probably be a starter for any other team in the, in the league. That as a team, it's, it's not a bench made up of kids. No, the bench is not made up of kids either. That's an absolute fair point. But just looking at the first 11, I mean, that team for me, probably should be finishing third in the league, no problem at all. It goes back to this point. I think we've we've all made at different points and it becomes harder to stick with this point. But certainly going back, even just a few weeks ago, I think it's fair to say the three of us were of the opinion that we had decent players. Certainly for the first 11, it wasn't that we were, you know, we just had a rank first 11 and this is where we are because that's just where we are. I think we're all of the opinion that we had decent players and for whatever reason, it's just not, it's just not working. It becomes a little bit harder to maintain that position as the weeks go by. But, you know, you're just looking at it now and I would, I still have to agree. I think a lot of other teams in the division would be looking at that saying, I would love to have a whole chunk of those guys. They'd start for us every week. I just can't get my head around why it's not working because I'm, I'm still of the opinion that there are plenty of players that are good enough in our starting 11. I think to go back to the, the winning goal today it's people will say that those things happen and if this was something that was happening in isolation and this was like every one in 10 games then you'd say you know what bad luck it's the same every pissing week every game there's a calamitous goal just like it just like the first goal where again they don't have to work hard at all to get into our area shot is free it's just it's just comical and i agree with graham there i still think that it's a good group of players and we go back to the point we made with Tom Watt, where as with every passing week, I my belief shifts to another manager would be doing better with this group of players. And retaining faith is getting harder and harder. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of where I'm starting to get. And I've probably been the one out of the, the, out of the three of us who's maybe been willing to stick their neck out that little bit further about having faith. You have been. Thank you. Um, I still desperately, desperately want it to work out. I really do. I know that we all will. I know we all do. Can I ask you something on that? Yeah, go. Have you kept that level of faith because you really want this to work because of who Stephen Glass was to you as a player? No, I don't think so. I think um, maybe there's an element of that. Maybe. I think I really want it to work more because I would like... I think it goes actually wider than Aberdeen, actually. Um, I think it's because I would really love to see an outsider in inverted commas come into the Scottish game and 
do something different and show that it could work and you don't have to have come off of the the typical Scottish football manager's merry-go-round um, to make it work. And I think in a really weird way, guys like Tam Courts, with the exception of the fact that his silence about the Ojo incident has been deafening. Um, Tam Courts is a good example of that. You know, a guy who's not come off that merry-go-round and who's doing a good job for Dungeon United. Um, Martindale at Livingston. Now, I'm not suggesting these are guys we should be taking in, just for the voice of doubt. But I like seeing guys who are, who have come from a different... It's nice to see a left field choice come in yeah. and shut a few people up. And I absolutely get your point on that one. I can I absolutely see where you're coming from there. To me, for me, it doesn't matter who the Aberdeen manager is. I want them to be successful because if I said they're successful, then Aberdeen are. What's I think what worries me the most is just this was the first appointment with our new setup, if you like, the new era, as in, you know, Dave Cormack is in seats officially, if you like. Stuart Milne taking a back seat. You've now got a sort of a structure, a more modern structure. That doesn't necessarily mean it's right just because everyone else is doing it, but a more modern structure that what you probably look to the, the more successful clubs have. And you're starting to think, okay, fine. We're maybe waking up to how other people are doing it. Let's go and try something different. Now, I'm not saying it's failed at this point, but we're sort of teetering on the edge of that being the case. And I think that's what worries me more, that the setup and the system in place to recruit the manager hasn't worked, not necessarily the manager, you know, not because he's Stephen Glass and he was a good player for Aberdeen. It points to a sort of slightly wider issue. And I realise it's only the first appointment they've made, so not everyone gets it right first time. And they may stick with him and it might, might sort itself out, but it just worries me the way things have maybe been run and a lack of transparency on certain bits and pieces and statements that are made or statements that are not made are sometimes the worst ones. Yeah, and I just want to follow up on that because Graham made a good point about, you know, not every first-time appointment is going to be great. In reality, the vast, vast, vast majority of managerial appointments that occur in football across the spectrum are not successful. That is a very good point. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the, the old managerial merry-go-round, would we? Because no one would be getting off. You know, it, it, look at look at however many clubs you want to look at. Look at how many managers did Liverpool have to go through before they got to Klopp, for example? Look at how many managers Manchester United have gone through since Ferguson's been away. Unless you happen to be, look at Scottish football and people go, well, Rangers and Celtic, for example, maybe don't have the same level of turnover of managers that other clubs do. But there's a reason for that because generally speaking, it's a two-horse race in, in Scotland. And chances are 50-50 one of them's going to win the league and they'll be kept in their job and if they don't if they run them close they'll probably get another little while in the hot seat if you think about it like with the old rangers what well, like Gwen was pretty much the only one that they binned off super early because he was miles off it and didn't get it um i guess kashina is maybe the other one you would add to that mix but that was fucking funny as bits so never mind you know the vast, vast majority of managerial appointments are not successful managerial appointments. So expecting you're going to hit a silver bullet every time, just, Christ, just look at Aberdeen. How many managerial appointments did we go through before we landed on McInnes? All that brought, in general, was stability. I mean, I appreciate the League Cup, and don't get me wrong, it's better than it was. But if that's the pinnacle of what we can achieve, that's a bit frustrating. It kind of brought us back to where we should be on a budgetary level. Right, and I've had this argument. I've done how many times with people, and this is not to decry. And anyone thinks I've, I've got it out for McInnes here when I'm saying this, as completely getting the wrong end of the stick. McInnes did a really good job in the first 
three, four years, A, to restore some respectability to our football club. I think for me, that was the prime thing that he actually did. We weren't a laughing stock any longer. Yeah, exactly. Words out of my mouth. And we were where we should be on our budget. We can all talk about whether or not he actually underperformed in certain areas. Even during that period, even that, that perceived golden period, I would argue that in some instances he underperformed. Finishing third to Motherwell in the first league campaign, for example, was underperforming as far as I'm concerned. I, I would argue we probably should have ended up with more trophies in the cabinet than we did. But that's by the by. On the whole, Dan McInnes did a good job here in his opening couple of seasons. Restored respectability, fine. But how long did it take us to land on Dan McInnes? And let's all not forget, when we appointed Dan McInnes, everybody was sitting there going, what the fuck kind of appointment is this? He's just been sacked by Bristol City. His St. Johnston team were shite to watch. Nobody was, a, I remember, it. no one was overly keen on McInnes coming in the door. Um, I was. Okay, well, there we go. I, I, was, I wasn't. I was in the, the camp you described, which was the guy's record is not what I would expect from an Aberdeen manager. Here we go again. Now, absolutely, I was quite happy to be proved wrong and that, that will always happen, but yeah, it wasn't an appointment that got me sort of kicking the door down to buy a season ticket and merchandise, and I was really excited again. Let's remember, the other option was Derek Adams. Well, so. it's the way to say it. I suspect the reason why you were positive is because Derek Adams was another choice, but for me, that was like a choice of, well, we spoke about it earlier on, do you want your right arm cut off or your left arm cut off? As it turned out, it worked out for us, and and that's that, that worked out. But like I say, how long did it take us to get from, I mean, you would even say... There's an argument, I mean, you can argue that the cows can hold but whether Willie Miller was a good Aberdeen manager or not. The first two seasons, great, but then we nearly got relegated. We would have been relegated, probably, if Miller had stayed in situ. Roy Aitken wasn't a good Aberdeen manager, but we won a cup with him. You're probably looking back to almost, this, and people will slate me for this as well, but saying that McInnes was probably, I don't even, would I even go as far as to say that it was the first time since Alex Smith was in charge where we Probably the first time since William Mill was in charge his first two seasons where we had that element of respectability about us and we were not a laughing stock. I think it's probably fair to say. Um, Calderwood kind of sorted out a little bit, but at the same time, there was always a Queen in the South lurking in the background or a Queen's Park or something that would just undercut all of that. So this is a really roundabout circular conversation about whether or not I want Glass to succeed because he's Stephen Glass. No, I don't. I want Stephen Glass to succeed because I'd love to see an outs- a perceived outsider coming in and showing us that this can be done and that we can do football in a different way in this country and it doesn't have to be the way that it's always been done. What I really, we're kind of putting the cart before the horse here a little bit. If there's a decision made, and let's be frank, the next seven games in the run-up to the winter break, I think are make or break now for Stephen Glass and his time in charge of Aberdeen. If there's a decision made at some point that it's time for this managerial appointment to end, what I hope doesn't happen is that we decide to rip up the whole structure and go we've got all that wrong and we need to go and appoint a proper Scottish football man and all that stuff all over again I hope that this is more of a we're going to keep the structure because I actually think the structure is the way that a modern football club should be run I think that what we're doing on the youth side is absolutely the right thing to be doing I actually think that the idea of the recruitment manager or the head recruit whatever is the right thing to be doing it's what every other top club in Europe would be aspiring to do I just hope we don't rip this all up and try and go back to how we've done it before because this hasn't worked out. It's a time to be brave, isn't it? And that doesn't mean digging your heels in because you've made a decision and you want to be proved right. The brave can be making that difficult decision, but then agreeing that, okay, that particular appointment might not have worked out, but it's not the setup 
that's the problem. It's just unfortunate that particular appointment didn't work. So let's look again, but let's look out with the usual pool of managers. And, and I am with you on that one. I just don't feel like we're ever going to, maybe we never will break that, gra- that glass ceiling. Maybe we never will be what we were. But I just don't see how if all we're doing is copying everyone else, and by that I mean picking from the same pool of managers, how we're ever going to break out of this, what I would describe as a sort of rut that we're in. I feel like our our chance to do something is to do something different and hope that we can really crack that and that gets us up, you know, pushing up the not just the league this season, but in general, the club pushing forward. I think um as we kind of walk towards January and January is big because it's got the kind of feel of when Mark McGee's second season where you know we got closer and closer and you kind of knew that the trigger needed to be pulled because if we leave it and then nothing happens we say we leave it and January is a difficult market to work in anyway because generally speaking when you're a team like Aberdeen especially you're working with guys who are out of the picture at their current clubs so then you have to bring them in and maybe they're short in confidence. Maybe they've not got many minutes. So you try and get them up to speed, which can take like a month or two, or then they can get injured. And it's just, you're as good as not having signed them. Fraser Hornby. Flo Camberi, come on down. The troubling thing is, and it's like, are we are we too good to be to not be relegated? Definitely not. No. Yeah, I was just going to say that doesn't exist. And I'm glad you've said that. And the, and the troubling thing is the teams in and around us, they're not, none of them are on great form, but they're picking up wins here and there on a more frequent basis. They're also, generally speaking, if you look at who's down there, they're used to being in this. This is their existence. They know how to do it, the scrapping, etc. It's kind of new territory for us in relatively recent seasons as fans, never mind the management team and probably a chunk of our players. So that in itself doesn't really help us out. The other problem there is as well is that we've brought players in with a view of playing in a particular way. Now, whether we've brought the right players in and whether they can do it is a completely different conversation. But none of the players we've brought in or that are at the club just now, or not, maybe not none of them, but I look through the squad and I go, would I really fancy a relegation scrap with a lot of these guys getting sucked into battles, getting sucked into niggly games with teams in and around us no, I wouldn't, because those are the games we've struggled in big time this season so far. And when you look at the run of fixtures we've got coming up, we're going to talk about Livingston and St Mirren later on. So, we'll, we'll, But if you look at the, the clubs, Livy, St Mirren, St Johnston, Dundee and Ross County, Hibs and Rangers will kind of take care of themselves as games. These are the teams we've struggled against this season. You know, it took a, a late howler from um, the goalkeeper at Livingston to get a 2-1 win. St Mirren out battled us when we went down 10 men in, in Paisley in the season. Dundee did a number on us at Dens Park, doing all the things that I said earlier on, made it niggly, made it difficult, made it a battle, and we didn't fancy it. And then Ross County, we needed a last-minute equaliser to salvage a 1-1 draw at home against them. And again, they did exactly what St John's did on the week before. They came, they sat in, made it difficult, made it hard for us to break, break them down. Now, the one caveat to that I would have is that we didn't have the likes of Marley Watkins properly up to speed and in the team at that point. Ryan Hedges was still missing with injury. So we do at least have a little bit more, I think, in attacking options going forward who can be a bit more creative. But these are not easy games of football we've got coming up. And I saw somebody talk earlier on on Twitter about the fact that, you know, when's the time to make a call about what we're doing 
this season for the, for the for the chairman. And I saw somebody saying, well, look, if we were still in and around a relegation battle place, whatever you want to call it, or within six points or whatever of bottom spot or the playoff spot, come February, March, that would be the time to act. And I think for me that's way too late because if you allow this, let's say we get to, let's just say we get to the January break and we are basically in the same spot we're in right now eighth place maybe six points ahead of bottom place it doesn't take long for that to slip away those especially because the teams around us have got games in hand as well if you allow then the current management the current coaching team to go into the transfer window and then to go and buy players recruit send players off whatever and then you make a decision two months later or a month later to bin him you're like you're bringing a new manager with his hand tied behind his back it's not his players who's assembled try to get a tune out of them in a relegation scrap Oof, not for me ted um <laughs> it, it, like for me it has to happen if it's going to happen it has to happen before the window so that then a new guy can come in he can get the the the, the january the winter break time to work with players etc and he can look at the squad alongside head of recruitment and everyone else and bring in the type of players we need to try and get us out of the mess we're in at the moment yeah i think the point i was trying to get my work my way back to was that yeah that this next run of fixtures i think the board the people who are ultimately going to be held accountable if you know the worst were to happen and make no mistake relegation would be absolutely disastrous for aberdeen the people that are held accountable they need to be looking at almost on a game by game basis and seeing is there enough to work on or do we need to make that decision because it needs to be made sooner rather than later i definitely i completely agree on that point so all in all i put a um a pretty sobering However, Sunday. yes. One thing from what I gathered from the highlights, it looks like Joe Lewis did a lot of his work very well. So, well, I was just going to say, all in all, uh, a sobering Sunday afternoon at Celtic Park. Not necessarily because of the performance today or the result. I think that that is, like I said, they're on a par for the course, relatively run of the mill. Aberdeen defeated Celtic Park in the last two years. I think it just speaks more about the overall pattern that we're in at the moment. Uh, and where we're going topped on for me you've just touched on there Gavin I thought Joe Lewis today was 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 very good back to his very best I thought made a couple of really good saves commanding in the box came and claimed stuff came and punched stuff did well I actually thought Ross McCrory and David Bates also did actually quite well in the centre of defence um, so yeah there we go let's move on in other news from Potodra this week, with no game to review for the women, uh, their home fixture against Partick Thistle and SWPL1 was postponed due to the adverse weather conditions in golfing northeast. And it's a lengthy wait for Emma Hunter and Gavin B's side. No fixture in the calendar until the 12th of December and away fixture at Hamilton before the winter break then kicks in. Moving on to the young team, a Liam Harvey hat-trick saw the Dons progress to the quarterfinals of the Youth Cup as they saw off St Mirren by the odd goal in seven in Paisley on Friday night. Aberdeen quick hit the traps, Harvey netting his first with a lovely lob over the outrushing Kennedy in the St Mirren goal to set the Dons on their way. A second fold on 10 minutes, Harvey again with a fine clipped finish past the goalkeeper. The young buddies half the deficit on 25 minutes, Kieran Offord cutting in from the left-hand side of the box, smashing his finish past Blessing Oyemi. And after weathering some heavy pressure from the home side, Aberdeen grabbed their third. Towler's fine pass found Babbage, who was brought down by the goalkeeper, and Ryan Duncan thumped the resulting penalty kick past Kennedy, and the Dons went in at halftime, 3-1 to the good. After the break, Emsley ran clear of the buddies' defence, and Kennedy tripped him, leading to a straight red card. For the goalkeeper and the home side down to 10 men, the Dons compounded the misery for St Mirren with, with Harvey smashing in his third after Duncan's free kick. 
hit the woodwork. And in difficult conditions, the Saints fought hard to reduce the deficit. Gil Martin grabbing a goal on 65 minutes before a red card was flashed at Don's substitute Finlay Marshall. Before Struthers scored again to leave the Dons to see out a nervy last few minutes, which they did, and they make their way into the quarterfinals of the Youth Cup. On Lone Watch, a quieter than usual Lone Watch this week with no games for, for Martin Huntley or Breakin in the Highland League. Jamie Shingler did, however, retain his spot in the starting 11 as Keith beat Nairn 3-1. Kelty 4 for Anne Peterhead, all in Scottish Cup action, but none of Baron Nguyenia, Gallagher or Duncan appeared in their ties. Michael Ruth did start and played the full 90 as Falkirk were beaten 2-1 in the Scottish Cup by Wraith Rovers. We doff the cap to the Wraith Rovers fan media page for their tweet about knocking Falkirk out of the cup today. Lovely stuff, guys. Keep it up. And finally, Luke Turner kept his place in the starting lineup for Cliftonville as they drew 0-0 with Coleraine in the Northern Irish Premiership. And on Ronnie Hernandez's watch, Atlanta United knocked out of the playoffs last week. Talk in the papers about the fact we do not expect to see Ronnie Hernandez returning to Aberdeen in January. And then the Venezuelan posted a cryptic story on Instagram. And Graham, you've taken the time out to go and translate it for us. What does it say? Yes, I've definitely taken the time out to learn Spanish, which is what I assume he speaks. And uh, he was telling us to give grace to the Lord and to proclaim his greatness, let the world know what he has done. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, can't wait to see the lads buzzing to get going, which is kind of what I was hoping it was for. Hashtag we go again. <laughs> yeah, with a, like uh, muscle arm emojis. Yeah, none of that, no. Uh, it doesn't appear to be unless my Spanish learnings have failed me. No, just a lovely tribute to Willie Miller. <laughs> so there we go. Ronnie Hernandez, we hardly knew you. Ronnie Hernandez, enjoy your paid holiday. Fantasy Football Scotland updates. I've had a very good week. I say very good week, 52 points. I mean, that's probably my highest and I don't know how long. Helped by the fact I had uh, Jota as vice captain and Lewis, Lewis Ferguson in my team as well. So picked up a few points there. 52, pretty good going for me. I'm, I'm quite happy with that one today. Sees me romp up the ABZFP table up to 159th spot. So come on, you Reds. 48 points for Sweet Considine this week. Yes. Bearing in mind, unfortunately, that is a consequence of me going over budget in the transfer oh, market oh, in, a, yeah. in a Rangers-esque fashion. So I had a minus four deduction because I think I brought Furuhashi boo, and Boyson. So, yeah, Jota and the Hearts players have got the bulk of my points this week. So 48 points, and that has taken me... Basically, no movement. I think I was 76th last week, and I'm 78th this week. I had 40 points, which isn't very good, but is quite a significant improvement on the last few weeks. Although Craig, uh, Craig Gordon got half of them. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe Shaughnessy cost me minus three. I don't actually know what he did. Got sent off. Oh, what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I only left one point on the bench, so I'd, I never feel too bad if, you know, basically nothing on the bench. So, yeah, 40 points. Thanks to Craig Gordon for half of them. Um, this will not surprise you, but I have tumbled down the league. To where? I, uh, 189. Oh, oh, there we go. 
Jack Curran and his two turkeys extends his lead up at the top of the leaderboard. He's on 914 points now. A cosy, what's that? 30 points clear of second spot. Captain James Tavernier, I thought. So. Uh, uh, there we go. Nah, sorry, Jack. Down to 246th spot. You go. Old Kent Road. We're still not sure if this is a sleeper cell. So uh, 60 points, 884. And then GX, Silly Geese, 51 points, 875. Topically, Gold, Frankincense and Gurr making a, a run up the table into fourth spot now, 62 points. I'm presuming he doesn't have Jack Gurr in his team. It may shock you, but I was going to say he does not have Jack Gurr in his team. Disappointing stuff. And then this is a new one, the Abu Dhabi 49ers. Chris Coffey, fifth spot. Lovely stuff. Keep on keeping on, guys, on your ABZFP league. There are some top, top prizes to win, if I do say so myself. Let's move on. So let's look ahead. This week, we kind of touched on it briefly earlier on, but we've got a doubleheader in the league at Potaudry Wednesday night and then Saturday, Livingston. Yeah, Graham is getting very excited about this. Livingston make the visit to Potaudry on Wednesday night, followed up by St. Mirren on Saturday. What are we thinking, guys? We've already spoken about the fact that the next seven games are critical. A home doubleheader against teams you would ordinarily would look at and say that should be six points. Thoughts? This probably isn't the done thing on a fan media fan-led podcast but i've never been so happy to have band practice on wednesday night <laughs> well two of your heroes will be there so taking the liberty shall we say to uh explore livingston's recent form and look at the spl table it's you know they're sitting in 10th 13 points so only two behind ourselves with a game in hand last five games three draws a defeat uh today we're recording on sunday so they lost today to rangers and one win, which I believe came against Ross County away. So they've been competitive. And I think the, the stats, the data shows that they are far better on their travels than they are um, at the Tony Macaroni currently. So same old, same old, difficult, difficult game. I'm sure they'll come up and do what most teams do in the SPL and try and frustrate us and just wait for us to, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot. So, um, yeah. Difficult game. Big game as well. Uh, you're right, Gav. I mean, Livingston, they sit 10th at the table on 13 points, but they're away form. I mean, nine of those 13 points have come on the road for Livingston this season. They're sixth in the table from a, an away form perspective. They picked up a good point at Celtic Park a few weeks ago, um, doing exactly what I expected to come and do to us on Wednesday night, which will be to sit in, make themselves difficult to beat, and basically tell us, come on, see what you can do Aberdeen and if I'm being perfectly frank Celtic have got a lot more attacking firepower than we do and weren't able to do a huge amount against Livingston in, in that match and I am concerned that this could be a very very long night on, on Wednesday night Yeah I would agree with that it's maybe sort of football snobbery but it's really disappointing that a home game at Livingston is one we're genuinely concerned about rather than looking forward to it thinking okay that should be three points never going to be easy but pretty optimistic we're going to win looking forward to the game I think like you said and I'm not critical of the way I expect them to approach the game you absolutely you, you do what you think you need to do with the resources you've got and enough teams have demonstrated this season that it will be successful against us so why wouldn't you I think it's going to be really tough I just uh, I hope and this includes you know myself or anyone who listens to this 
hopefully from a, a crowd point of view, we just get behind the team from the off. I, I do think that helps. And we've been fortunate enough to, you know, have plenty of people give us their time and speak to us and they say it makes a difference. So I hope we can try and do our bit to influence the team's performance. And I just really hope we can get uh, something out of the game. And I should add something out of the game as a win. We we're at the point where, okay, there's plenty of games left in the season, but if we're going to try and salvage something from this season, three points at home to Livingston is the outcome we need. Equally, on that point of the fans backing the, the team, the team have to reciprocate that and give the fans something to like latch on to, which I feel has been an issue this season in that we've been too passive. Yeah, that that's that is a valid point. That you know, it is a partnership, it takes two to tango, etc. So you're absolutely right. If Aberdeen are playing with decent intensity and we're actually putting Livingston under some pressure, maybe a couple of chances, or we're getting into the final third of the pitch, then hopefully players and fans can really feed off each other. You're right, it's not it's not one person's job to do it. But I just hope, given the form we're in. And I absolutely understand people voicing their frustrations. I'm not being critical of that. I'm just hoping if there's a requirement to do that, maybe we can leave that to the end. I think Wednesday night, probably more than Saturday, and I'll explain why in a minute, the fans probably do need to show a level of patience on Wednesday night. And I know that's really difficult, and you guys are right. It's it's a, it's a double-edged sword, and, and it takes... The, the team have to give the, the fans something to hold on to, but at the same time, if you understand football, and I'm not trying to pretend that we're like, you know, these all-seeing, all-thinking eyes about the game of football. But if you know football, Livingston are going to turn up on Wednesday night and they're going to do exactly what I just said earlier on. They're going to sit in, they're going to make it very difficult, they're going to make it niggly, they're going to break up play, they're going to try and frustrate with the view of getting fans on, on our backs. Livingston will take a nil-nil draw every day of the week, twice on Sunday, on Wednesday. It's what they'll do. We saw it at Celtic Park earlier in the season. That's exactly what they aim to do. I'm on. I'm. I'm quite frank about this right now, given the form we're in at the moment. And I'm not saying that this is an acceptable place to be for Aberdeen Football Club. But if we can sneak a one-nil win on Wednesday night with a 92nd-minute winner, bring it on. I'll take that because of where we are at the moment and because of exactly how we know Livingston will set themselves up. And you're right, Graham. It's not a slight on Livingston. It's not football snobbery. Dave Martindale has to try and do what he can do to keep his Livingston team in the league. And the way they will do that is by going on the road, picking up draws points, doing the same at home where they can. That's what they'll do. That's what they're gonna, that's what they're gonna aim itself to do. And if you were any manager at the moment in charge of a club in Scotland who doesn't have the budgets of a Rangers or a Celtic or maybe even a Hearts or Hibs to that extent, you're gonna come to Todd and you're gonna try and sit in because that's it's been proven time and time again this season so far that, that you're gonna probably at least come away with a point. And there's a very good chance you might walk away with three because there's a mistake or two in that back line. So you're right. I think that it's an appeal to an extent for people to to be patient. And if it doesn't work out, then voice your displeasure at the end of the game. Or obviously if we're 3-0 down at halftime, you can maybe voice your displeasure at that point. But if it's 0-0 and we're still going, I think the fans need to give the, the team a lot of backing to try and get them over the line here because the run of form we're in at the moment, it's, it's not good to be going in a game against Livingston at home with no disrespect to Livingston and going... I'm, I'm not per se worried about it in the sense of I'm worried about what Livingston can do to us. I'm more just wary that we don't have an awful lot around us at the moment to to blow them away and you know come away with a 4-0 confidence boosting victory or something key for us on Wednesday is probably to come out the traps early and get an early goal 
this season, I think we've really struggled to do that against teams. Really get a goal early doors and force teams to have to kind of come out and play a little bit. I can't think of too many examples of where we've done it. I can't think of I can't think of any occasion we've scored in the first fifteen. Maybe really early on the European games. I was going to say maybe in Ice, maybe in Iceland. In Iceland yeah. we did. I think at Wraith Rovers were probably about the fifteen minute mark when Jets yeah. scores. But apart from that, we've made it to. We've given teams enough time to get a foothold in the game and give themselves a bit to defend. Yes, which just allows them sort of validation of their game plan, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas you're right, if we can, I mean, I don't actually think if we score early, that will change the way Livingston are going to approach the game, but it's going to make it much harder for them because they don't have to score just one. Now they've got to get at least one. And clearly if you scored against them, why couldn't you do it again? So it would be really, yeah, I think that is absolutely critical. Just don't allow them to try and disrupt the flow and get a foothold in the game and impose what I think their style will be. I would like to see us be in the ascendancy. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but I do think that would be, like I was saying, the, the players have to offer something. I think if they come out and approach the game like that, first 5, 10, 15, whatever, we're really at it. I do think everyone's going to start feeding off each other and we'll get a good atmosphere, which I think can really make a difference to the result. I should add, none of us are telling people how they should or shouldn't support the team or whatever, you know, you pay your money, you're there. But I do think if we can get a half-decent crowd and all be on the same page, that that has to give us a better chance. Yeah, absolutely. I think the main threat, actually, that I can see from Livingston is probably going to be Bruce Anderson, a guy who we know very well from his time at Aberdeen previously. He's their top scorer. Four goals, he's also got their most assists on three. Had quite a good game today against Rangers, by all accounts. Um, yeah, scored as well. He's done well. Um, you know, he'll do what Bruce Anton does as well. I think he'll put himself about a bit, make himself, you know, um, make himself a nuisance to our centre halves. You could see at the macaroni that it looked like he was playing as though he felt he had a point to prove. And I'm sure he'll come up with that exact same intent on Wednesday. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and looking at Livingston as well, they're not a team that scores many goals. They also don't concede a lot of goals either, which I think just sums up exactly what we're kind of expecting to see probably. And they have an unbookable midfielder in the centre. Well, I was going to talk about that because Graham will be looking forward to getting to see Jason Holt live and in the flesh for the second time this season, I imagine, Graham. I noticed he didn't get booked today. That's because he's unbookable. That's what the name means. <laughs> he, he was also the most fouled player in the match today. There you go. You see? Mad skills from Jason Holt, as it turns out. Yep. That's probably enough about Livingston, I, I would imagine. Moving on to Saturday, which is then Jim if I, if I may say one final thing that you said you'll take a 90-second minute winner. If Strychek wants to throw another one in the net, feel free, fella. There's 20 quid on the way from the ABZFP crew. That's probably enough about Livingston. Let's have a look at Saturday's match, which we'll see Jim Goodwin take his St. Mirren side to Pataudry for the first time this season. I never realised until I was watching a bit of sports scene last night, Jim Goodwin's got a fantastic accent and a really strong beard game. Top marks. Pretty impeccable, isn't it? It's pretty good, to be fair. Um, I, I guess as well, Saturday might be dictated, I guess, how that game pans out, depending on what happens on, on Wednesday night. But I'm kind of anticipating... As maybe a slightly different approach from St Mirren than, than Livingston. 
similar and again, similar to Livingston, their away form is way, way better than their home form. They've got 16 points in the league this season. 10 of those have come on the road. They're the joint third best team on the road this season in the league, uh, joint with, uh, with Dundee United. The reason I'm, I'm anticipating they might come up here and do something a little bit different is because uh, watching the highlights of them against Hearts yesterday, whilst I think they will sit in to an extent, they looked much more likely that if, when they get the ball, they actually try and do something with it. Um, in terms of trying to break through the lines and try to get up the park. And actually, they, they kind of took the game to hearts a little bit yesterday from what I could see. Um, and you would normally expect in a tie like that of hearts going pretty well in the league that St. Lennon would probably just sit in and try and take a point and go back to Paisley with the point. But it looked to me like they were really trying to try to get something out of the game. And so uh, whilst I don't think they're going to come here and play expansive football, I think that they're still going to probably offer up more of a threat, I think, than Livingston will. Over the last, what, 10-something years, you'd expect more of a footballing side in St Mirren in comparison to Livingston. So I'd agree. I think that would, that is likely to happen. Once again, we've had a little look through their, their recent form, and in the last five in the league, it's, it's not great. It's three draws and two defeats, but, you know... They lost yesterday on Saturday to, to Hearts 2-0. 1-1 draw at home with Livingston. A disappointing 1-0 defeat at home to, to Dundee. So submitted and aren't, and by any means, in any great run of form. And I think they lost the guy, Connor McCarthy, to what they think is going to be a pretty long-term injury. Yeah. And he's obviously a pretty key player. Joe Shaughnessy might. I think it, I think it was two yellows, so he'll probably be back. He should be back. It was two yellows. Because they play, they play Ross County. Yeah, Wednesday. on Wednesday when we play Livingston. But Conor McCarthy is a big player. Obviously, Javon McGrath, we all know about a very talented um, individual in midfield. I have absolutely no comment to make about Curtis Main or any of the St. Mirren strikers. <laughs> but again, I mean, yeah, well, hopefully we're going to this game with a little bit of confidence off the back of three points and a good win against Livingston. But at this moment, it's hard to say what to expect and you know who will have available, who will get injured. On Wednesday, which one of the management team will get sent off? Which one of the players will get sent off? I don't know. It's uh, yeah, hard to predict. I mean, the one thing I would say is that Jim Goodwin certainly last night after the game against Hearts was bemoaning the fact that they're not scoring enough goals, which you know sounds like a familiar tale to us as well. But it looked to me that they were kind of creating opportunities or getting themselves in a good, good, good situations, but not making the most of them. Um, in fact, they only scored they only scored one goal in their last four three in their last five. So they're not exactly, you know, free-flowing, scoring a lot of goals at the moment, but neither are we, so... And this feels very deja vu as far as I'm pretty sure this is the same way we were talking before we went down to St. Mirren Park, whatever it's called. Is it St. Mirren Park? Is it St. Mirren Park? It's the Smiza Arena, I think, this season. It's the same, yeah. So it's the same kind of chat we were having before that game and we, uh, well, we all know how that one panned out. Well, they they hadn't had the, they hadn't won a game when we went down there. They'd had one they had one point on the table, I think, on on the board at that point. So I just expect it might be a slightly different game, but probably might pan out in a very similar way. And again, even if we get a victory against Livingston on Wednesday night, I still think that's not necessarily a turning point per se. It's just to start hopefully a recovery back to where we hope we can be. But again, I would imagine you're probably needing a level of patience again against uh, St. Mirren on Saturday. I guess that atmosphere will be probably dictated to by what happens on Wednesday against Livingston. Um, I feel that we're not too far away from being back in that atmosphere. We were at Dens Park, so it make it make it makes Wednesday all the more important for Saturday. 
don't disagree with you on that. And of course, potentially some issues as well that Dylan McGee went off injured today at Celtic Park. What was the what was the cause of that? I didn't really see what happened, to be honest. Um, I think it was just a bit of a coming together and it, it looked to me like it was more of a muscular issue rather than it being a, a, a bad hit. Um, so that doesn't potentially bode very well. Scott Brown obviously had cramp in inverted commas. So whether he'll be available on Wednesday, add that to a long list of injuries that we currently have. Well, yeah, I think there's no imminent expectation for returns for Gallagher, Ramsey or Mackenzie that I'm aware of. No, I, I imagine Ojo will be back, but it's not really offering us, I don't think, a huge amount different in terms of trying to create some opportunities up at the other end of the park, which is where it feels like we're really struggling at the moment. Um, so yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting week. And it sounded like there was some uncertainty on Twitter, but there's speculation that Ross McCrory could be suspended for Livingston. I don't think he is. He 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 was booked and it takes him over his threshold, but I think it takes two weeks for that to kick in for an accumulation. So I think he will likely miss the Hibs game away, I think, is the game he'll probably miss out on. But I guess we'll find out. And, and the good thing is we had no coaching staff or managers sent off today. Um, although I think Stephen Glass has been offered a one-match ban for his questioning of Bobby Madden's integrity last week. I don't know what's happened with that because I assumed that he would have been off the... I assumed he wouldn't be on the bench today, but he was. So I don't know if we're appealing it or what we're doing. I guess maybe we haven't responded or we're appealing or, yeah, whatever. Uh, hopefully we're telling them. Poke it is hopefully what we're doing. It's the SFA. They maybe forgot. <laughs> well, this is entirely possible. Do we uh, do we hit up some predictions here? I was just going to say predictions. We'll talk Livingston first and then we'll do something. Um, yeah, Livingston. Graham. Uh, it's going to be cold. Going to be toasty in that practice room where I am. It's, diff- it's, it's difficult to know what we're going to get. To be perfectly honest, I think we're we're in agreement of what to expect from Livingston, and that that's absolutely fine. No criticisms of them for that in any way, shape, or form. It just feels like I, I don't see how after you know between what's what's going to change between Sunday and Wednesday, other than personnel shifts for various reasons. So. I don't see what's going to change him. By that, I mean, I imagine we'll probably have most of the possession, but I just don't see what we're actually going to do with it. So to me, it's, I was going to say it's about nil-nil, but then that requires us keeping nil. So I'm not really sure that's possible. I just don't see anything other than us huffing and puffing and just not really getting anywhere, to be honest. Still not a prediction, though. (laughs) Well, I, I'm going to go nil-nil, be bold and say we'll get a clean sheet and then certain people within the club will be claiming that as a result. Ourselves included next week. Yes, probably, when we're looking back on that, <laughs> that <laughs> one draw out of whatever it is, 10. <laughs> I will predict that Scott Brown will be fit and available. We will shift to a back three. Ojo will go to right wing back and take your pick of Campbell or Hayes will play left back. In the event Scott Brown is not fit and there's a consideration to Jacker, I know I've said I've got band practice, but I will make myself available to play right back. That whole be kind thing like ran out of steam pretty quick. Um, 2-1. 2-1 Aberdeen. Difficult game. Go a goal behind. Rally. Get a goal through Lewis Ferguson and get a winner through... I'm not going to say Jet because what the fuck was I on last week? Well, um, he'll, need to get the, he'll need to get on the pitch. 
Ramirez will get the winner. 2-1, Ferguson, Ramirez. I'm going to go with the 1-0 win uh, last minute. Austin Samuels gets his first goal for Aberdeen. Last minute winner. Horrible game of football. Horrible, horrible game of football. Probably played in horrendous conditions, I imagine. I haven't even looked at the weather, but it, you know it's going to be on a Wednesday night against Livingston. Um, Jason Holt will be sent off. It, but he won't be booked. <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep up Graham's record. Yeah, 1-0 Aberdeen. And we move on to Sun, uh, to Saturday against Sitman. And then we're going to turn it on. Aberdeen will win three goals to one on Saturday against St Mirren. Curtis Main with a goal for St Mirren, obviously. Christian Ramirez with two, and Austin Samuels will score again. Keep up his fine run, and the Dons are suddenly looking upwards rather than looking downwards. Graham, do you want to follow that up? I just want whatever he's been putting in his coffee. Well, this episode is brought to you by Hop Shop Aberdeen, so... <laughs> I will predict a 3-2 victory against St Mirren. Goals from St Mirren for Joe Shaughnessy. No. Curtis Main and Eamon Brophy because I've slated Eamon Brophy so much in private. And goals from another from Ramirez. Watkins to get back on on the goal trail and David Bates to open his account. Goal from a set piece. I, I just can't see anything other than copy and paste, repeat. No, no. No, I'll, I'll go wild. 1-0. 2? Curtis Main's going to slice one into his own net. <laughs> nice. Nice. So Graham reckons we're taking, what, four points from six? And Gav and I are being entirely optimistic and we're taking six from six. Lovely stuff. Glass has got his play and Don's are back. And that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for our exclusive interview with Don's legend, the Ocean Elders, and to play us out from the first half, here's Masenko and their track Android Soul. Check out the guys over at masenko.bankapp.com. Here's Masenko and Android Soul.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Hopshop Aberdeen. As passionate supporters of the Mighty Dandies, the guys at Hopshop Aberdeen are offering listeners a 10% discount on any online order on an unlimited basis for the remainder of the 21-22 season. Simply use the code ABZPODCAST when checking out to receive your discount. So visit hopshopaberdeen.com and get selecting from their extensive selection of over 500 craft beers from the northeast of Scotland and further afield for the week ahead. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast and we're delighted to continue our line of exclusive in-depth interviews with Aberdeen personalities of past and present. And this week it's a man who made the move to Aberdeen from his native Netherlands in the summer of 1988 and who won the hearts of the Aberdeen support from his very first warm-up at Dens Park and eventually made 290 appearances for the Dons, winning a cup double in the 1989-90 campaign. And he formed part of the 2019 class of the Aberdeen Hall of Fame. It's the one and the only Theo Snelders. Theo Snelders, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? Uh, thanks. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Theo, listen, we're delighted to have you with us tonight on what is going to be our landmark 20th episode of the show. And I need to start with actually an apology to you um, and this is an apology that's been almost 30 years in the making um, you will not remember this at all but in 1992 I was a mascot for a home match against Motherwell Duncan Shearer was my favourite player at the time so I did my photos and everything with Duncan but you were brilliant with me in the warm up and everything and you, like we were doing little shooting drills and stuff and as I'm making my way to the referee to go and do the coin toss and everything you, you try and pass me a ball to kind of take as a souvenir and I just, I just don't see it, and I completely ignore you. And we've got it on video, and it's like it, I cringe at it every single time I see it, because um, I just completely missed it. So I, I have to offer you an apology right now for ignoring you with that one. It's one of the worst mistakes of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember that. Well, that's good. That's good. You've not, you've not been holding a grudge for thirty years, no, no, so that's no, the main no. thing. Not at all. So let's just get started, I guess. So obviously you were born in Vestervoort, um, it's in the eastern region of the Netherlands in, in December of 1963. And was football always your kind of first love? Yes, it was. Um, yeah, we always had in, uh, like a field where we always, uh, out of school, where we, uh, yeah, where, where people joined up, the boys. And uh, we usually played football uh, yeah, every day uh, after school time. So that was already uh, quite popular. And, and who was your kind of boyhood club and, and who were your first football heroes you can remember? Uh, well, I played for my local team, uh, Sportler Westervoort, and um, they had a goalkeeper. He played till he was 19. 
for our local amateur team. Then he went to uh, become a professional. But I was always um, uh, collecting balls because he was getting shots from his friends. And then when they went home, um, he always took me apart and uh, gave me a training session. His name was uh, Johan Tucker. He played for, actually he played for Groningen. Uh, he played for Heracles. He played for Cambio, all the teams in the north. He uh, he played for, so he had a quite a good career as well. And that's where it all started. And well, Ajax was my favorite team because of uh, Cruyff. I mean, when I was seven, eight, they started to win the European mm-hmm. Cups. I remember the first, 71 or 72, when they beat Milan in the Kuip in Rotterdam. And Cruyff scored twice, I think. And uh, yeah, they, uh, Cruyff was my, my hero. And were you always a goalkeeper growing up? Or? I started outfield. And what I said, because of Johan Tucker, I became quite uh, quickly, uh, I became in goals, got quite attracted uh, uh, to be a goalkeeper. Meant you couldn't use the Cruyff turning goals too much though back then, eh? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so you sign up for FC20 when you're 16, and then just after a week after your 17th birthday, you made your first team debut, which to my knowledge uh, makes you the youngest goalkeeper to have appeared for 20. That's right, yeah. Can you remember much about that game? Yes, yes, I do, because um Say normally I would have made uh, my debut on my birthday because the game was cancelled. Um, but the, the, the manager hadn't told the, the team. Um, we had always an, um, a routine that uh, at the club, the Friday was the last session before the game. And we always went up in the canteen and we sat together and had a yeah, sort of a, a meal. And then uh, when the meal was finished, the manager always uh, stood up and then he told the team selection. But I didn't think at no hint at all that I was uh, going to start. So I was still eating a bit. And then all of a sudden, Annie Holling was the, the coach. He said the team for Sunday is in goal, Theo Snelders. And I went... <coughs> nearly swallowed uh, the food and uh, but I was actually uh, Sparta away and we had in the team quite a few players who who became famous was we had Halva Torse he was uh, the captain of Norway he uh, played in a game when they beat England uh, maybe you're too young for it but the Norwegian uh, commentator went completely mad after the game and he was going like, uh, Margaret Thatcher, we beat you, uh, uh, Churchill, and then uh, we beat you all. So he was one of the players. Uh, Martin Yo, he played later on in England. Uh, Romeo Zondervan, he played for West Brom and Ipswich for 10 years. And in the opposition team was uh, Degas Advocaat and Louis van Gaal. And we won the game 2-1, so it was a... It was a big day and, and uh, yeah, looking back, 17 years of one week 17, that's 
Yeah, I don't think you see that nowadays. Uh, yeah, uh, Donnarumma is the one who, who springs into mind. Uh, um, but it was a great day, my debut. I can imagine. And then ultimately, obviously, you, you cement yourself in the FC20 first team, end up making over 176 appearances over an eight-year spell um, for FC20 as they make their way back up to the era de visa. Fast forward to kind of May 1988 and across the North Sea, Aberdeen fans are, are reeling from the news that um, Gothenburg great Jim Layton has agreed to join Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. And this was quickly followed by the news that Ian Porterfield was resigning from, from his role at Aberdeen with Alex Smith and Jockey Scott taking the reins as co-managers. And top of their priority list at that point is to replace Jim. Um, can you kind of talk us through just how you're move to Aberdeen came about? Yes, it was, um, well, my contract um, was open that summer, but then at that time you didn't have the, the Bosman ruling. And uh, But in the winter break, uh, I went to see Tom van der Halen. He, uh, he had become an agent and he was um, the general manager uh, at Twente when, uh, when I signed for them. And I said to him, uh, said, well, I'm, I'm eight years at Twente. Uh, I would like to make a transfer in the, in the summer. So I didn't hear a thing till the day uh, Alex Smith came along to watch a game, uh, Twente against Groningen. I met Alex Smith that day. And uh, uh, the thing was that um, he wanted to see some more footage. So Tom made an... Uh, tape from uh, over the years from my games at Twente. In the meantime, the European Championship was going along in, uh, in Germany and Holland uh, won the tournament and beating uh, Russia in the final. And uh, then all of a sudden it became quite quick. Tom phoned me one day, he said uh, my holiday address, he says they're really interested, uh, they want you to come over. So I went over, um, I think it was just a week after the Piper Alpha tragedy, or just before, I'm, I'm not sure anymore. But So we had talks at Petaudry, then uh, we went up to uh, Dundee um, for a stop to pick up uh, Jockey Scott. And then uh, we drove to Sterling, Alex Smith uh, dropped his washing at his mum, and then we drove to Larks, we went to... Uh, the training center there, and uh, that night I trained with uh, Jockey and Drew. Well, we, we left, and then uh, Tom had a written offer from Aberdeen for Twente, and they offered, I think it was a 250,000 pounds, but Twente, they could ask uh, one million. So they didn't agree, and Tom said, well, you just go, and um, they will sort that later. So we were actually uh, we were two weeks in training and we came back from Gordonstown and then uh, Twente and uh, Aberdeen started negotiating again. And then Tom phoned up the, the secretary, he said, uh, well, they offered now uh, uh, 900,000 um, guilders. The thing was, it was still the 250, but what happened in the, in the two, three weeks time, the pound had gone up 25 cents. So Twente thought, it's funny. First we get offered in pounds and now in guilders, there must be a Scottish trick. 
so in the end, uh, they agreed and yeah, everything was settled then. But that's how the, the move came along. Uh, and of course, when I hear the name Aberdeen, yeah, I was thrilled because the first thing what came in my mind was 83, uh, watching uh, Real Madrid, the Bayern and the Real Madrid game. Yeah, happy that a team like Aberdeen were interested. Interesting to know that you obviously clearly um, had some knowledge of Aberdeen already. So did you need any kind of convincing from Alex Smith and Jockey Scott to make that move? No, 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 no. Well, I mean, at that time, I knew already that um, that for a goalkeeper to make a move, it's really difficult. And at that time in Holland, was no chance because Ajax, Final PSV, they had uh, good goalkeepers and uh, they wouldn't pay that kind of money. Uh, for a goalie and I knew that uh, in Britain they would do that and I had already the experience playing in Britain because as a schoolboy we had a tournament in England yeah, I was fascinated already with the British style and the atmosphere and the games no I, I didn't, didn't need any convincing uh, to go over so obviously <clears throat> when you join up with the squad initially um, Theo what were your kind of first impressions of the squad that you joined and Scottish football in general? Well, it was, when you, you think about it, in Holland, we would never have that. Did it? Say when, when we, um, well, Paul, Paul Mason, he came at the same time and there was a group of, uh, must be 40 or nearly 50 people in between that number because the first team, and the reserves or the young boys, they were training together because it was from Petrodery jogging up to Seaton Park and then exercises and then running, running, running. Yeah, there was not, in the beginning, there was not much football, uh, <laughs> football sessions. It was more get yourself fit uh, uh, by running. Um, and the thing was, we, I, I didn't know much uh, about the place at all. Uh, so for us, I, I remember that we, we had a tournament, uh, was in Rothes, and we had always, um, we played two days, and we had every time we had mixed teams. But the thing was that um, a lot of the players had nicknames, and um, we were reading the report in the Press and Journal uh, the Monday, and they were talking about Paul Wright, and we were, we were thinking, to Paul, Paul, who is... Paul Mason said, Paul, who's Paul Wright? I don't know, I don't know, because we knew he was Bunyan. <laughs> His nickname was Bunyan. We never heard the name Paul Wright. The initial thing was that the first two weeks, we, we, we didn't have an idea what from uh, yeah the, the quality of the players, um, what they were like, because most of it was get yourself fit. And then after two weeks, was more um, uh, ball training involved and closed our games and we played a tournament in Rotterdam. And by that time, you you knew from, well, yeah, we, we've got a good uh, bunch of players. And your first impressions of, of Willie Miller and Alex McLeish, um, I think Alex Smith tells a story, or I've seen it, that when they found out you were, you were being signed, um, Willie wanted to know, first of all, if you spoke English, <laughs> and secondly, if you understood, and I'm going to quote, stay on your fucking line. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that story a lot, but Willie never told me. Uh, <laughs> he never told me that. 
joking aside, how did you find working with those two guys? Because obviously you formed a really good triangle partnership with the two of them. I mean, if you would be a striker, you would be happy if you have good wingers who, eh, who can play crosses. But I mean, uh, you found out later how lucky you were to have a defence with David Robertson, uh, Stu McKimmy and a central partnership of Willie Miller and Alec McLeish. And you can't complain. So in, in that way, you're lucky uh, that you come into a team who, who have a settled defence. And I think after a while, they were happy with me and I was happy with them. Yeah, I mean, at the time of the rec- recording this, it's a day after we got beat by Dundee uh, 2-1 and what we would give for just one of those five right now. Um, <laughs> Theo, how did you find moving to Aberdeen just as a city, um, also in comparison to where you'd been before in Holland? Well, the, the thing was that when the time came nearer, you're excited. And then, you know, you leave a lot behind. The family, Miriam, uh, was at that time my girlfriend, now my wife. Um, we were going over and we didn't know much about Scotland. We were thinking about uh, the only thing we knew from Scotland was the James Harriet. That, um, so we took our traveler checks and uh, our suitcases with, uh, with clothes. Uh, because I, when I moved to Aberdeen, I stayed with Dix and she was still living with her parents. And then saying goodbye to your family, uh, that's quite a hard thing when time comes closer. And um, yeah, the worst thing was that we took the whole family to Schiphol. Then the tears come eh, from the people you, you didn't expect of. But then, you know, you're going into an adventure. It's something you wanted uh, to go. So we stayed first in the Athol Hotel at the King's Gate for three months. And then we moved in in middle of October into the Brummel Avenue. But yeah, first you were a bit, yeah, you didn't know much about it. So you didn't know what to expect. But on the other hand, it was a great adventure. And uh, afterwards you can say, well, Worthwhile adventure, and uh, it was a great, great time I had over there. As you made reference to, you know, 1983 is still very recent history. You're being brought in directly to replace a club legend in Jim Layton. Did you feel this provided you with additional pressure to perform on top of the pressure you'd already be putting on yourself? Um, no, not at all. The, the thing is, uh, when you're young, you're... Uh, because I didn't know Jim so much because there was no any uh, footage yeah, except the Dubai and the Madrid game I had of him. But um, the thing is, you don't think about that. The only thing is for yourself, you want to do well and you want to get, you want to get settled. And, uh, and know, you know, for instance, if you do well, the other one will be forgotten quickly. And if you do badly, then they, they talk always about the other one. For me, it was just a big adventure and uh, yeah, going 24, going abroad. And yeah, I played already eight years uh, professional, uh, nearly 200 uh, professional games in Holland. So it was not that you were inexperienced uh, in following to someone's footsteps um, because I had done the same thing already at Twente. Uh, Goldie, he was experience and was in the national squad two years uh, later uh, when I was 18 I was already uh, playing a full season in the Eredivisie so no I didn't have that fear at all uh, 
and then moving forward, obviously your first full debut um, for the Dons arrives at Dens Park and anyone who was there that day, um, and I remember it well, will remember the buzz on the away terrace as the support got their first glimpses of yourself and your extensive pre-match warm-up with uh, <laughs> with Drew Jarvie. And it's a sight that I don't think any Aberdeen fan had really seen before. And I'm struggling to even think if we've even seen anything like it since, to that extent anyway. Um was that always your kind of physical, mental preparation from whenever you started in the game? Yeah, it was It was even the thing when I came to Scotland. I didn't because you always hear it, uh, about England that they never did a warm-up. And um, But for me, it was it was my usual. Um, you always went a little bit earlier outside than the outfield players in Holland. And it was just a routine you were doing. First, a few... Uh, laps to uh, to warm up a few stretches and then get a feel of the ball and it's just the way you've been brought up and I always say it's a lifestyle <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think everybody remembers it um the first day it was just so different to what anyone had seen um, yeah. before and this was then followed up by an impressive debut performance in goals um particularly I think a lot of people like the vocal nature of 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 yourself and your booming of oot around <laughs> Dens Park and how did Willie and Alex um, in front of you I guess react to you joining in with their organisation of the backline? I think they quite liked it because I always I remember say we, we played in the pre-season and it was completely different from Holland in Holland was always uh, six weeks preparation you played a lot of games but when I came to Scotland it was four weeks play a couple of games and they said you get yourself uh, uh, informed by because of the, the amount of games you will play in Scotland so we played the Rotters tournament we had a closed do- closed door game and then it was the final tournament we played Feyenoord in Antwerp and then I always remember that they said um, keep talking Theo keep talking yeah, uh, that they uh, yeah, that they liked it and, and always when you when you're an organiser, a talker at the back, it keeps yourself uh, sharp as well. So your debut season, it's a huge success for you personally. You know, you're an ever-present in the league, uh, making 36 appearances and conceding only 25 goals as Aberdeen finished runners-up to Rangers in the league. And you're involved in all the League Cup ties as the Dons make their way back to Hampton for the second year in a row to contest the final against Rangers. Can you talk us through your approach to the final and just what you were thinking as you line up at Hamden for what was your first ever senior cup final in, uh, you know, in your first few months of being a new club? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was already after October that the games uh, were played. And I must say that um, something new was as well, that you always, uh, we had a couple of games before that we travelled uh, away games on the Friday, and uh, the final was on the on the Sunday. And, um, and the good thing always, what I liked, really tradition was that we came at Petardry, you, you you took your stuff what you needed, and then you went onto the bus. And then the first time, uh, I think that was Celtic away on the league game. Then we made a whole tour through Aberdeen, and we went to uh, Rubislaw then. And then we picked up um, the chairman, Ian Donald, and his son, and uh, Mr. Bobby Morrison. And then the chairman always came in with a, 
his box of quality street and he passed it on to the manager and before we were out of Aberdeen the box was empty and uh, we usually stayed at the airport hotel I must say from the rest of the preparation I can't remember much but um, yeah 75,000 uh, at Hendon Park complete uh, something different with the noise and the and the, the passion uh, in the stadium, uh, yeah, only the, the result was not uh, what we were looking for, but a great occasion and uh, yeah, unbelievable, the, 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 the noise at Hemden. Had you known anything like that in back in Holland, you know, the, I think Lee Richardson we've spoken to and he called it almost the desperation of Aberdeen fans to beat Rangers and just how intense that rivalry is. Yes, yes, yes. I know that how, how that it is. You could even see also with, with Celtic. Yeah, there was also, but you could see that with Rangers was a complete different uh, rivalry. But um, yeah, on the pitch, I mean, that's what you. That's the thing you never forget is the, the games against Celtic and Rangers. Yeah, just the atmosphere and uh, yeah, Celtic Park, Ibrox, Hamden. Just the noise of the the horses yeah, uh, making their steps, the noise of them, and, and then you hear the sound from uh, programs, programs, yeah, people uh, people are selling the programs, and yeah, great, great uh, memories of of those games. That first cup final obviously ends in disappointment um, for the squad. A, a second consecutively cup defeat to Rangers. Can you talk about just the kind of disappointment, the, the feeling in the squad after that final? Because Aberdeen played pretty well actually in that final, um, yeah. and kind of just came up a little bit short in it. Yeah, the the thing is, with um, of course, it's a disappointment, and for the for the other ones, even worse because it was the second time. Um, but the thing is, yeah, you can't have a setback for too long because the games keep piling up. I don't know which games we had after that, but. And you play the Wednesday, I think, even again. Um, so the games keep piling up and life goes on then. Uh, I think it's just, at the moment, it's a sore one. But then you just continue uh, because of the games coming fast and furious. And so you round off your first year in Scotland by picking up the PFA Players Player of the Year award, which made you the first non-Scot to ever win the award, actually. Can you just talk to us about how much that meant to you? Um, it's an award that means a lot, possibly even more, because as it, as I say, it's voted for by your peers. So what did that mean to you? A lot, because when even also um, a proud moment for myself, but also for Alex Smith. Yeah, when you come to a new club and you sign someone you actually haven't seen uh, playing live only of, um, of videotapes, and he's your first signing, then for him, I think it's, he was also proud, but for myself, when you think about when I came to Scotland, no one uh, knew me. And then after one year, they give you that uh, award. It was quite funny when I came to Aberdeen, the, f- the first time with Tom van Dalen, we, um, I don't know where we stayed, we stayed uh, Queen's Road in a hotel, I don't know the name. The Marklift, and then um, we drove. Uh, Bobby Morrison picked us up, and we uh, arrived at the stadium. 
and there was a guy uh, walking uh, down the street and he said, uh, oh, you're a new goalkeeper. And uh, he said, uh, if you're as half as good as Jim Layton, we're happy. <laughs> and then Tom van Dalen, my agent, said, if, he, if he's better, that's not possible. Yeah, lo- looking back, back at all these things that it's amazing when you think about it, like I think for even f- every foreign player who goes abroad and then after one season, you get that kind of award. Yeah, great feeling. Yeah, well, I mean, you win that award and you've also won the hearts of the support, it's fair to say. Um, did all this just help with you settling into life in Aberdeen? Of course. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it always makes it easier. It's even with any kind of job you do, you like it, you, you get uh, recognition um, by your colleagues. And um, yeah, of course, it helps if you if you play well. And, and uh, yeah, you get a lot of support from... Yeah, from your teammates, uh, from my girlfriend at that time, and yeah, the recognition from the supporters, of course, that helps. And to cap off a fine first season at Pataudry, you also make your international debut for the Netherlands that season. Um, that comes in March of 1989, a 2-0 victory over the, the then Soviet Union with um, Marco van Basten and Ronald Koeman scoring for the Dutch. Can you just talk us through just how proud a moment that is for you, for your family, to get that first cap? And I guess talk us through as well, playing with the likes of, you know, Frank Reichardt, Ronald Koeman, uh, Marco van Basten, Ruud Hulet, who were in that that team that day. Uh, well, I've, I've played with them before for the uh, national youth teams. Actually, I was in the 17s. I was still playing for my amateur team. And uh, Reichardt and Vanenburg... <laughs> They were already at Ajax, and I, I was the captain uh, of the under-17s. Um, the Russia uh, selection came by surprise because of injuries of Van Breukelen and Hiele. Yeah, of course, it was a very proud moment because it was more or less the rehearsal of the championship, uh, European Championship final in the summer of 88 and half a year later. And they had uh, Desayev, uh, Rats, um, I think Michalichenko, he played, uh, Kuznetsov, yeah, and Kuman from Boston scored a 1 0, and Kuman scored a 2 0 from a penalty. And the game was played at uh, PSV Eindhoven, that was as well as one of my favorite stadiums um, where I always liked to play when we, with Twente, when we played there. So that was, yeah. Great, great feeling uh, to making your debut. And then moving on to the next season at Aberdeen, was there a real belief in the squad that we could maybe go a step further now and, and really put some silverware back into the Vitology boardroom? Like a team like Aberdeen, they, they have it every season. Uh, everyone at the beginning of the season is very optimistic and then don't know who we signed in the summer then, but yeah, we knew we had a good team and we were really close. I think the belief was always there. Yeah, when you got uh, Miller, McLeish, Bad Nicholas, then if you look in the in the central uh, of your team, then you got good players. So of course you got a chance, and the belief was there as well. So speaking of that desire to win trophies, uh, once again you're ever present as we sweep past Albion Rovers, Airdrie. Sitmiran and Celtic to set up a third League Cup final in a row against Rangers. 
after the near miss the year before, what was the mood of the camp like going into the final? And do you remember anything changing in terms of preparation or approach to the final that time around? No, not that I can think of. It was just the usual the Saturday, arriving at Petardry, get the city tour to the chairman, to the Lubuslaw then, <laughs> and the, the quality street box coming out again. So there was no difference. And the only thing I can remember that at halftime, the jockey went from, do you really want to win this final? That, that's the only thing I can remember in the, in the team talk uh, at halftime, that he was putting the, the, the real belief, because I think at halftime, yeah, it was still 1-1. These games you never forget because of the first time you win a trophy and the way the way it happened Paul scoring two goals and uh, I'm making a few uh, crucial saves. I remember Alex Cameron writing in the uh, Daily Record something about it. Uh, no one told uh, Santa Claus where Alex Smith got these bargains from or something. Uh, <laughs> because in total, I think he paid 200 for Paul and 300,000 for myself getting that kind of reward by winning uh, against Rangers in the final, Paul scoring two goals, that, um, yeah, you never get fed up talking about this game. <laughs> no, I know I know everyone's really going to want to hear more about the game, but I just need to drill into this now. When that quality street 10 is getting passed around the team, oh. bus, what's, what's Theo Stelder's first choice out of there? Oh, just... Uh... <laughs> I don't know, just put your hand in and try to get <laughs> as much uh, sweet desire as possible. <laughs> you adapted to Aberdeen life so well right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they always said about the Dutch the same, that they were uh, greedy. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing they asked me, uh, if, uh, if we had an, uh, a light in the fridge. <laughs> 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 I mean that final itself it's it's a hugely memorable one for Aberdeen fans and you kind of touched on it um, your good friend Paul Mason is the hero at the attacking side of the pitch and we, we spoke to Paul on episode 15 just about that day and you play a huge part in the victory as well with a heroic performance at the other end especially there's that one save in the dying embers of extra time from from Ali McCoyce which is really special you kind of touched on it a, a minute ago but I'd like just to, to delve into it a bit more just it's your first senior trophy, um, given this the circumstances. It's Hamden Park. It's it's Aberdeen Rangers. It's been three attempts now in a go in in a row. What are your kind of emotions like at that point when the final whistle goes and we've actually we're going to bring that trophy back to Aberdeen? I can still remember it because I had the last touch of the ball, uh, the first half of extra time, and the referee blew his whistle, and I had the last touch. In the second half of extra time, because it came across from Ray Wilkins at the back post, and Bucci was piling in there, and I thought, oh, I get clattered here. But he missed out. He just uh, ran. I was just in front of him. So he clattered the post, and I just asked him if he was okay. And then the next thing was that uh, George Smith uh, blew his whistle, the final whistle, and I still remember holding up the ball just like above me, and then just whoosh, wallop it uh, up in the air. Uh, yeah, great, great feeling. Uh, 
Yeah, fantastic stuff. Obviously, the league campaign kind of falters a little bit that season. Um, another a, a, a significant number of draws really stops Aberdeen from mounting a proper league title challenge. But the Dons bulldoze past Park Thistle, Morton Hearts, and Dundee United to make it to their first Scottish Cup final since 1986 in a meeting with the other side of Glasgow. Uh, with Celtic this time at Hamden. And the game itself is entirely memorable for being a terrible game of football uh, on a fiery Hamden pitch. And as extra time ticks away, thoughts begin to turn to the prospect of this being a first ever penalty shootout to decide the, the destination of the Scottish Cup. As extra time is just starting to to disappear, what's starting to go through your mind at that point as a goalkeeper? Well, the thing was before and saying nowadays... Um, if you would go into a final, you would go through all the, the parts. Eh? If we're one or done, what we're going to do. If we're one or up, what we're going to do. If it's going to go to extra time. Um, if it goes to penalties, eh? who are their penalty takers? Uh, what does, how does Bonner react on penalties? You would all sort the thing, these things out. In the 90s, you didn't have that uh, special... Specialized goalkeeping coaches were hardly there. And actually, we didn't pay attention at all that, that it might go to penalties. Uh, and the only thing I remember is from the penalty shootout that, that Bonner, uh, I had my philosophy that it was the always right footer will shoot over a standing leg to give the ball more pace. And the left footer would do the same. And I, I kept uh, the philosophy going all the way. But Bonner was going past and uh, he, he said, oh, they're shooting well. Oh, they're shooting sharp. And then after nine for us, then he said, well, we are next. And he started thinking of, oh, yeah, it could be. Uh, then when Graham Watson took his penalty, I saw uh, the Celtic players, Mike Galloway, he started it off in winding up Celtic and making a lot of noise. And... Um, well, I did when when he scored. I did the same with our crowd. But luckily, they were behind the stand with the roof, and the noise was was unbelievable. It helped in, in two hands because the referee, looking back now, the referee was helping as well because he delayed the kick from Rogan um, because he he came over to me. You're not allowed to do it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, ref. I won't do it anymore. And blah blah blah. And uh, he had to take. He had to wait longer and longer. These two things. It's hardly, you know, hardly can predict this or uh, make the script. They making their noise. Uh, I, I wind them up and then make the noise and make the save. And and actually, over the years, I've I've only seen it. I think one last year or two years ago, you see actually a stretcher behind the goal. There's a Celtic supporter being carried away. Yeah. And he's he's injured, but he's not that much injured on the neck that he still looks up and uh, want to watch on the row his penalty. And then he, he sees he misses, and then he just boom, he collapses <laughs> back on the stretcher. <laughs> so yeah, unbelievable uh, when you think how that game finished. The excitement of it all, uh, penalties. It's it's a, the worst thing if you lose it. But a great uh, thing to win it in, in that manner. So uh, you've made you've made mention already in terms of your philosophy of how penalties are going to be taken. 
But can you just talk us through your thought process as Anton Rogan steps forward, as the referee's, you know, taking his time, making him wait, and then, you know, the penalty comes and you manage to, to turn it around the post? Yeah, well, it's hard to remember, but the thing was that I, I knew he's a left-footer and a defender. Yeah, he, he, he's not a technical player, so for him to take the risk to uh, place it inside foot at risk, I think is too high for him uh, that, that the goalie will uh, will save it. And nowadays, if you, you look, yeah, players are getting more um, specialized in penalties, eh? waiting for the goalie. Mostly, if you would keep that most of the time from the 10 penalties, is like... Uh, Given the ball pace uh, over their standing leg, yeah. Also the noise of because there's a microphone near the behind the goal that you can he also hear the sound of the ball hitting my inside hand. Uh, yeah, great noise. <laughs> <laughs> and again, just your feelings, just as you, you you get your hand on that ball and you know it's gone past the post. It's a great save. And then to double it up a minute later, just watching Brian Irvin step up to to stick the winning penalty into the corner of the net. Yeah, it was a great feeling. And the thing is that that's hardly uh, hardly been mentioned. But I mean, looking back to all the players, eh, because we were catching up with them. Well, they, they missed the first penalty, mm-hmm. but our players at every time had to catch up. Eh? And even Charlie, eh, his last penalty, I mean... That could have that could have gone wrong, eh? the, the the pressure on the players at that time, and well, named Graham Watson, but all all the players who took a penalty. I mean, the amount of pressure by catching up, and you know, you, you're not allowed to miss because then you lose uh, you lose the final. That's worthy uh, an applause as well. Uh, I still get the benefits of it because I I saved the penalty, but more or less because they scored. Obviously, it didn't happen, but how were you feeling uh, yourself about maybe having to take a penalty uh, after Brian if, uh, if Anton had scored? Well, the thing is, I've never thought about it till, uh, was it last summer? Villarreal Man United, when mm. David De Gea. Yes. Aye. It was actually this, the same kind of, they were doing catching up. It was the first time I thought about it that this could have happened. I never thought about it before, <laughs> but 30 odd years later, uh, it comes along. Um, but no, I never thought about it. Just entirely in the moment, every penalty, yeah, one yeah, after the other. Yeah. Excellent. Can you remember much about the celebrations afterwards, though? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, first of all, it's hard to imagine now with with the, with the mobile phones you've got. Um, but at that time, Holland were doing because of the interest of uh, of the Dutch players for Aberdeen. At that time, they had to block off certain times that they could broadcast uh, the game. So they had uh, booked for uh, Aberdeen Celtic the cup final a certain time, not thinking of uh, the penalties that were going on that long. So. Uh, all of a sudden, the game was broadcast, maybe a few highlights, but then it was live, uh, okay. the extra time, and the penalties. But then time was up. I don't know if they blocked it off till 
maybe a quarter to six or quarter past six in Holland. And then uh, there was no screening anymore. So we went from Hamden to in five uh, Crook's Nest or something, a hotel. And when I arrived in the room, the first thing I did is I, I phoned up to my mom. Is there, uh, of course, yet uh, here that we had won the cup, but she didn't know in what kind of manner. And that I had saved one, and then uh, we had still to take a penalty to win it. And we stayed overnight uh, in Crown's Nest. But I, I remember as a, as a player, you always sleep bad after the game. I didn't sleep for a minute, I think. <laughs> I think just the excitement. Uh, I think it was already up at six. Went for a walk, went past a, a news agent shop, uh, or get already the, the, the Sunday papers. And then we had a tour in Aberdeen, in the open top bus, and then onto the balcony. I came home. I think I, I was just shattered, so tired early to bed <laughs> <laughs> do you feel maybe it's um, only been recognized later on in time just how much of an achievement Aberdeen winning the cup double that season actually was yeah yeah I mean I think it's most of your career I think most players will won't argue with saying that you, you, your life is in a tunnel when you're uh, your active career and then when your career is over you look back you know, it's well worth the effort you have put in. The bad things you, you, you pushed aside and then now you feel from and really enjoy uh, from what you have done in football. But yeah, for my case, uh, at Aberdeen, winning these trophies uh, and then in the way it went, uh, beating Rangers and Celtic at Hendon Park uh, gives you the years after uh, more pleasure than it did at the time. And it's another fine season for you, to you as well, just on a personal level. Um, 32 appearances in all competitions. I had a really quick question on this one because I can't remember. Did you actually end up going to the World Cup in 90 with, with no, the Netherlands? No, no. Hans, Hans, Hans wasn't, uh, he wasn't there by the celebrations. He had already, because uh, that was quite funny with because uh, I had family over and friends and Tom, my agent, he stayed also in Excelsior Hotel. And there's some nice shots with uh, Rod Stewart was there. Okay. And Hans, I think, flew Sunday morning back uh, from Glasgow to Holland. And the Dutch football magazine was over. And you see Hans uh, with Rod Stewart and Tom on a nice photo. Or it was Grolsch or a Heineken, but Rod Stewart holds a bottle of Heineken or Grolsch in his hands. Uh, so good promotion uh, for the Dutch, uh, <laughs> Dutch beer. The only reason I ask it is because I swear your sticker was in the Dutch World Cup squad for Italian 90 that season. You know, the Panini sticker right. books. Okay, you know, it was 94. Yeah, in 94 I knew you went, but yeah, 90, yeah. I, I remember having the, the, the sticker book and you were in it. But okay. I, I, could, I didn't think you actually no, made the squad. No, so. no Hans... Hans did, I remember that, yeah. but there we go. Okay, cool. That's that clarified now for me anyway. <laughs> Speaking of Hans, um, can you just talk us through how helpful it was for you to have a number of your fellow countrymen in Aberdeen at the same time as you, um, talking about the likes of Willem van der Ark, 
Peter Van de Ven, Hans, Theo Tenkat, and well, Paul Mason, who also had experience yeah. in Holland, just how much that helped uh, settle you and you know keep you uh, keep you happy in Aberdeen. Yeah, no, well, the, the, Paul and I, we came at the same time. Actually, I knew that that Aberdeen was interested in Paul, but uh, on the way we came over um, to settle in Aberdeen. Uh, Alex Smith picked us up. Um, I had an interview with uh, North tonight, and um, then he gave me the keys and said, um, "My car is just outside." Uh, to the right and he gave me the number plate just uh, wait there I'll be there in a, in a couple of minutes we were waiting then a couple of minutes later the door opens and it come, this Puma bag sports bag uh, opens and, and I think I've seen that bag before I don't, I, I don't know if it was groaning on it but I had po- never met Paul we played against each other and then he, he came into the car and said hi Paul so Paul has been a great help. I mean, he he understood and and uh, most of it. I mean, my English was yeah basic, and um, so Paul and I, and then half a year later, Willem came, so we could help them. And then Hans came um, a year later, and then Peter van der Ven and Theo Tenkaat. But but for me, it was the best thing that Paul came at the same time. So two new players and he knew he could speak Dutch and um, yeah, that was helpful and we we stayed for three Paul two and a half months in Ethel and then we uh, we stayed in the same street for five years in the Brummel Avenue and we still in touch uh, Paul and I so uh, it's great stuff and it's a really good insight into just you know the um the camaraderie and the the relationships that can get formed out of a football team from a sum of people who never meet each other beforehand and yeah. what that can what that can go on to lead to the the next season the 1991 season it's it's probably remembered your guess for yourself for being your your most injury hit um yeah. time at Aberdeen um your first major injury really arriving on that sodden night in October of 1990 uh, against Rangers where yeah. let's call it a reckless um challenge from Ali McCoist um, left you with a, a smashed cheekbone. Can you remember much about that incident itself and how how difficult was it for you to have to face a period of time on the sidelines, having been such an ever-present since you'd arrived at the club? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, we, we, we found already strange that the game went ahead. I mean, the pitch was waterlogged and um, what I believe is that there were already so many thousand Rangers supporters in the centre that they wanted the game to go ahead. Yeah, what I remember is that uh, Trevor Steven, I think, played a diagonal ball. Haley knocks it down and I want to block and then McCoy uh, slides in. And uh, what I remember is that I just just turned around, uh, just was just like a crash. And um, the thing is, I didn't feel pain at all, but I knew there was uh, something was not right. And uh, took me to the hospital, and uh, for three days, they, the Tuesday or the Monday, I I'm not sure anymore, but they, I had an operation. They uh, made a scar on the side, and yeah, they, they pulled it back. Um, I was getting only astronaut food from Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 
uh, you could see that it was not right. It was uh, it was too low. It was too many fractures mm. that that uh, would be enough. And uh, um, another doctor, I could go to the private hospital, St. John's, I think it was in Union Terrace or... Um, the Arbine, was it? Up on Arbine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, but I, the Tuesday night I was allowed to go home and, uh, but I was starving. I mean, I had for three, four days, I had only astronaut food. So I had uh, tried to eat a chocolate bar, but I just could hear <coughs> creaking. And I phoned up the Twente sergeant and he said, come over, uh, I'll get it sorted. So they did uh, operation by cutting the eyebrow, cut on the side and through the mouth. And they put four uh, small plates in, but the face, when the operation went, it was, just swells up straight away. But it, I think it took six weeks, six to eight weeks to heal. And then I went back into training and yeah, you can imagine what happens at eh? the first <laughs> training session. <laughs> I walloped with a mitre, ball uh, a lot of water on the pitch right in the face the good thing was that everything was still was still there so and I knew it was okay so yeah there was a sore one but I didn't have at that time uh, uh, that I was scared of of diving or getting hit in the face or whatever uh, but it was a yeah naughty and quite the way uh, came along. I was even quite lucky uh, considering the incident. Absolutely. So, as you say there, you're out of action until, in fact, the last game of the calendar, Europe was a 1-0 home win over Sitmiron, which was uh, secured with a last-minute Ian Jess winner. We've had Ian on this show before, and obviously you've played with many, many talented players, both at Aberdeen, at 20, with the Holland national team. But can you Talk to us about just how good a player Ian Jess was. Yeah, Ian is not a typical Scottish player. If um, if you would say, um, I mean, Scott Booth went to Holland, I think for Ian would have been very good as well. Uh, he's skillful, uh, a good eye, good vision. And I think he would have done really well in Holland, in the continent anyway, um, I think Holland would have been really good for him. Turning back to Aberdeen that season, it's a shock exit to Motherwell in the Scottish Cup uh, third round. But then from that point, the Dons embark on an unbelievable run of form, unbeaten in 12 games, winning 11 of them, to bring us to the brink of a first league title since 1985. And it sets up a last day shootout with Rangers at Ibrox. And unfortunately, injury problems hit again for yourself. A shoulder injury suffered against Hibs at Easter Road at the end of March ends your season and it's your understudy uh, Michael Watt who's thrown into the Lions den at Ibrox that day were you at Ibrox on that final yes, day? Yes, yeah. yes, yes can you talk us through I guess your emotions having to watch that game when you're not able to help change anything yeah it's difficult um, we, we were in the same boat with Trent a, a couple of years ago that, um, that we had to go to Ajax and for a draw, it would have been enough to win the league. Yeah, it's a cup final. And then you know that Ajax did the same again. And you, you learn from it. You know that all the tricks come out from the home team. Um, 
like ranges, all the tricks, uh, the crowds, the noise, uh, even at Ajax the Arena, when at, at Twente when we played them, it was completely different. And Ibrox at that day was different as well. The noise. Looking back, it's so hard, and we had the chances. I mean, we we should have scored the first goal. Yeah, that that you know, it's it's hard to. I mean, they know what they what they well we knew as well, but it's sometimes better to know that you have to win, and the draw is enough. When you know you have to win, all the breaks are off, and you know everyone knows you have to go forward. But if you can play on the draw, it, it's good. If if you're one 0 down, you can still score the one one, and then you win the league. But it was just like a cup final at Ibrox, and they're the home team. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's hard. Yeah, to get that the result then, because all even if it would have been nil nil till ten minutes till the end, there's always tricks where you can get a penalty or whatever. And but it was a sad, sad day. If we move forward into the next uh, campaign, and I'm going to come to a, a particular day, you might remember it, um, the 23rd of November, 1991. It's an away fixture in the league at Easter Road. And it's, I would say, probably one of your very, very few low points in your Aberdeen career, um, where you're sent off after, well, punching a, a prone Keith Wright after the award of a penalty kick, which you, you then compounded by hoofing the park, hoofing the ball out of the park um, <laughs> in response to the red card. Yeah. Can you share with us what was said in the exchange between yourself and Wright to cause you to react that way? Ah, well, I always hated him. I mean, he was a, <laughs> he was a, he was a yeah, d- dirty player uh, in my mind. He was just trying to, uh, yeah, you can you said he's going in and about people, but he was, yeah, he was not a fair player. I mean, I can, can imagine if you yeah, put a wee challenge in and uh, yeah, I hated always Easter Road and I hated him as well. Uh, <laughs> So no, yeah, I can't even remember that what I said to him, or uh, but uh, no, I didn't like him at all. What did Alex Smith say to you in the dressing room after that one? Because it was really unlike you. Um, he didn't say a lot, but I think he fined me. I think on a Monday. I think it's it's good what he did. I mean, he, he let the emotion drop. So the 91-92 season, it's a disappointing campaign for Aberdeen. Um, exits from Europe to Copenhagen, a third round League Cup exit to Airdrie and a pretty miserable run of form from November to February. It eventually sees the departure of Alex Smith as he becomes the first Aberdeen manager to actually be sacked by the club. Can you describe your thoughts on hearing that Alex has been sacked, especially as he was the manager who brought you from Holland to Aberdeen? Yeah, sad. I mean, it's, I think, I always think you only second manager. Yeah, the feeling between the, the players and the manager is not right. And then you can have bad results, but if, if the, yeah, the working relation, the manager and players is okay, you should never second manager because it's statistically, you know, that it doesn't make a change at all. Maybe you have a little hype in the first coming weeks, but then you're back to the old normal again. So sad day. Uh, I think the board that they would have regretted as well that they've they've done that. 
but I mean the fan power I think at that time was yeah getting so much that it was maybe getting too close to the board that they had to take the decision uh, what they did and ultimately it's Willie who's chosen to make the step up um, and take on his first managerial job how much did you did your relationship with Willie change I guess after he became the manager and not just the captain of the club um of course it's it's different but um I had the feeling he helped me when I came to Aberdeen I want to help him as a manager uh, to be successful so the relationship changes but I, I didn't have any uh, problems with Willie uh, and of course, Willie and the team steady the ship and the Dons finished the season in sixth sixth place, Aberdeen's lowest league finish since 1976. But going into the 92-93 campaign, you know, Willie's starting to put his own stamp on the squad, bringing in the likes of Lee Richardson and Duncan Shearer, two uh, previous alumni of this show, if I may add. Um, was there a sense of confidence going into that campaign? Well, I said before, when you're at Aberdeen, you always have a good feel about the season and and you knew that I mean it was getting closer and 91 it was a year after that a lot of the experienced players uh, who were carrying the team for years it was it was 94 more or less eh, that that uh, Jim Alec Robert Connor that they left I think we still had a good team at that time because I, th- I think Hans left a bit later on so no, we, we still had a good a good team. Uh, it's a real season, a campaign of kind of what ifs for Aberdeen. That one, you know, we finished runners up in everything um, to Rangers. The most painful, perhaps, was the League Cup final defeat. The Gary Smith own goal deep in extra time. Um, seasons fall fall short. Can you remember much at all about both of those cup finals that season? And was there a feeling in the squad? Lee Richardson kind of touched on it with us a little bit that it felt there was maybe a psychological thing with the squad where we just couldn't quite seem to get one over Rangers in those big, big games at that point. Yeah, yeah maybe we were maybe too fixed off. I think by beating uh, Rangers, I think you have to play, um, not thinking too much about them, but more about your own team, just to make sure you play better because you know that you have to be better because if you're equal with them, and you lose because then you got the decisions from the referee. So you, I, I thought always that you had to be better than them. Otherwise, you can't beat them. If you're level, then they beat you. And we were maybe too busy by saying we have to get one over Rangers. We have to get one over Rangers instead of trying to improve maybe our our style of play or uh, more concentrating our own own team. In, instead of uh, watching too much to the other. It's a, it's a memorable season for Aberdeen, um, for fans of a certain age. Um, Aberdeen racking up over 111 goals across all competitions as the front four of and Jess, Booth and Shearer scored 83 between them, including, you know, putting seven past Park Thistle and Airdrie and six past a hopeless Hearts team. As a goalkeeper, are you able to like enjoy or appreciate the attacking side of things when it's happening right in front of you? And do you find it hard not to switch off mentally from the game when, you know, when the game is effectively so comfortable for for Aberdeen? Um, no, not at all. I'm, I mean, I'm not, 
what I've just said before, I'm, I'm a talker, so you always keep yourself in the game. And, uh, and I had always uh, something in my mind, whoever you're playing, they always get one chance. And be prepared, uh, be ready for, for that one moment. But you're just talking about the Patrick Thistle game. That's, that's a game you never forget. We were actually, that was such a strange rule. We were 2-0 up. Then Paul started to dribble. And then the ball was getting bigger because of the <laughs> snow on the ball. And then the game was abandoned. But Ian had scored. But that goal was taken off the list. But the yellow card from Brian Irvin stood. And the Tuesday, we had to come back to play them. And John Lambie uh, wanted to be funny. He said, uh, we had only, uh, we tried to uh, clear the lines. We had only one brush. <laughs> Actually, it, it broke as well. Yeah. And then um, he was trying taking the mickey out of us. And then on the, because the game had to play the next week. So the Tuesday, Saturday, traveled back. On Tuesday, we went up to uh, Fur Park, is it called? Or Fur Hill? What's uh, Fur Hill. Fur Hill. Yes. Fur Hill. And then you beat him 7-0. It was the highest away, away win ever at that time. I think it was a record. I'm not sure, but but then you beat him 7-0. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, what a, what a feeling going off that pitch. And then and three days before, John Lambie takes the mickey out of us. <laughs> was it a bit given back to John Lambie that night after the no, 7-0? I think this was not the Ebenezer part that they, uh, before the game, that they handed over a brush or something because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still one of the funniest things I've ever seen is when the guy was out trying to yeah. shuffle the lines at half time, the brush breaks, and it's just yeah, like yeah, yeah. unbelievable stuff. Again, you, um, you topped the appearances list that season, making 52 uh, in total across all competitions. And then the following season, the 93 94. It's another what-if season. It's a season that a lot of people don't really talk about, but when you look back at the the, the statistics on it, we, we end up finishing second behind Rangers um, in the league, but by only three points. And we had 21 draws that season in the league, which is crazy when you when you look back on it now. It's a really close miss, actually, because it's, it's it almost, in a way, it's more galling than the 91 game because... The Ibrox game in 91 is a one-off. Anything can happen in one game of football. That's 21 games where, you know, you can improve the position. Um, but on a personal level for you, you you do make the Netherlands squad for the 94 World Cup. Can you just talk us through, I guess, about that experience about going to a World Cup with your with your country? Well, we were in a group at England. I mean, there was the, the famous game at, uh, at Wembley where Wouters elbowed Gaza. And then the home game... Scottish, they, they quite like it because Koeman, with now the rules, he could have had a red card. Eh? He pulled down David Platt. Yeah. He would have been one against one. But then <laughs> he came back to harm them. He scored the free kick uh, against Seaman. And then uh, Bergkamp scored the 2 0. And then the last game was we were away to Poland and England in San Marino. We couldn't believe it because I think that. The, the kickoff times were the same, but England kicked off and, and Stuart Pierce had a, a short pass back and there's one or San Marino. It was our team manager was on the bench and he was going, it's one or San Marino. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. We thought he was taking the, the Mickey out of us. And um, so we qualified 
for the tournament America and then yeah it was it's a long uh, I mean the preparation was already two weeks in Holland then one week in Canada and then I think we were two and a half weeks we got knocked out by Brazil in the quarterfinal through Branco free kick yeah if you're not playing and then uh, four and a half weeks nearly away that's uh, it's a it's a long time and then I came back uh, th- three or four days later we were already going on uh, on training camp to Finland with Aberdeen so it was a really short holiday great experience to go to America but in the end you were getting a bit homesick because of uh, yeah the time and, and my youngest was just born yeah it was a long long time so you're back uh, from your little little couple of days holiday and right into the new season. Um, 94, 95, Willie Miller is starting to, as you alluded to earlier, move more and more experienced players out um, of the team and bringing in his own personnel. Did you personally feel that maybe he was moving too many of those experienced bodies out perhaps too quickly? Uh, I think it's also a natural thing that, I mean, that... Um, yeah, I mean, Alec was getting an age where Jim was maybe getting an age. Uh, Roger, I think he had struggled with an uh, Achilles injury. And it's always hard to replace uh, players, uh, especially when you have to do it uh, three or four at one time. Then it always take, takes time. I mean, it's, yeah, if you take these players away, what they have done in football, and then you get the players back from who were maybe promising if they would have fit in into a team with a McLeish or a Jim Bett, it would have been easier for them as well. And now it was, yeah, you know, it was with a changeover. It always takes time and uh, you get hiccups. And then if if the people uh, don't bring what maybe the supporters expect, then what we're just saying, then people start talking about the others. And if they had done well, then no one would have spoken uh, about these plays. But in transition of a team, uh, it is always hard. And it's it's never the right moment. And, you know, nowadays in football, managers don't hardly get the time. Eh? They want supporters want instant success. Absolutely. And I guess that's something we're seeing in the moment um, at, at Aberdeen itself. Obviously, the 94-95 season is one that goes down in infamy for, for all Aberdeen fans. Uh, a horrendous run of form culminates in a 3-1 defeat away at Kilmarnock, which left Aberdeen staring down the barrel of relegation for the very, very first time. And it's at that point the board react and they announced that uh, Willie Miller's been relieved from his position. Can you just talk through the kind of reaction in the dressing room at that time to the news that Willie had been dismissed? Yeah, now managers know that if if you don't get the results, it's, uh, it's a matter of time when uh, when a new one will come in. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's hard. The same was with uh, Alex Smith. I mean, Willie had meant uh, so much for Aberdeen. So even Willie yeah, got, got sacked. So you know that yeah, it's a hard decision to make. And uh, yeah, I don't know what to, to say more about that. It's it's always sad. It doesn't matter who it is. If you like him or you don't like him, it's not nice to see. So Roy Aitken, who of course was on the coaching staff at the time, takes the reins 
And as you've made mention to, there's nothing better you can do as an Aberdeen manager than than beat Rangers, which he does on his first uh, his first game. Uh, 2-0 win at Pataudry before a disastrous uh, 2-0 defeat at Stenismuir in the Scottish Cup. Sets the team back. Um, you played that day. Can you remember much about that game? Uh, perhaps what went wrong? And had you ever come across anything quite like that uh, that ground in, uh, in Holland or prior in your career? No, no, not at all. No, that's it's the worst experience I had with Aberdeen to play that, yeah. Talk about it now, and you still feel ashamed about that. Yeah, that uh, that happened with a team uh, with a stature of Aberdeen. It's more or less you can applaud the opponent and yeah, to talk about how the facilities are there. That's it's maybe not really respectful to them because they 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 like to do their best, and we can put our uh, hands in front of our face that we. Uh, I'm still ashamed of that. Just a bad day at the office all round. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone we've spoken to who played that game says they played poorly themselves that day. Like Ian, will, Ian will say it's his worst ever game in an Aberdeen shirt that day. It just sounds like it's just a collective. Everybody just had a, a bad yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It's just in your head, eh? when you can imagine if you go to Ibrox or you go to Celtic Park or you go. The thing is that. In football, it's just in your head. You think you're tired. Jockey always said, you, you, when you think you're tired, you're tired. You, you say it's a bad ground, and it's a really bad ground. Eh? And, and things like that is just a mental thing. People don't want to make um, uh, yeah, the dirty runs. Eh? You, you say, uh, eh? we make runs for others. You think you can do with a bit less. And then if everyone thinks just 10% less, then you know, you're in for a disaster. And you end up suffering an injury in a, a home match against Hibs before you then return to the starting lineup for that make-or-break home match against Dundee United, uh, the penultimate weekend of the season. Can you talk to us about the build-up to that game? And I guess, you know, were there nerves in the dressing room ahead of such a crucial match? And then I guess talk about the atmosphere at Pataudry that day as well. It's a huge, huge game. Well, it's uh, I've, I've got a nice story to tell what happened before my uh, my two aunties and uh, uncles they wanted to come to watch a game in Aberdeen so they in November or December they uh, said and we want to come around uh, springtime I think that game was near the end of April yeah that would be right yeah and then they said oh well we have an uh, Dundee United is our uh, one of our last home games uh, could be a nothing game and then, well, that's maybe the one to come so, so they come to that game. <laughs> Gee me, what a game. That's the games. One of the games is in the top three in my Aberdeen time. My first, my first Rangers uh, Aberdeen when we beat them 2-1. And this one comes in it as well. That The noise was unbelievable. It was from start to finish. It was just noise everywhere. And... Uh, um, I think we were quite confident because we we were getting in a, in a good run again. Uh, I think the game's hearts. I mean, the game the week before was already decided already. Yeah, yeah. we scored in the last minute, and then United lost the goal in the last minute. Um, it could have already done by then. Eh? Yeah. Uh, if, if the results were going against us, 
So no, the atmosphere was incredible. Uh, never forget that. And yeah, what a tension in that game. But also the, the goals that were scored. And the, the second one, I still remember, was a ball along the line to Dodzy. And Dodzy just plays in front of Duncan. And what a finisher uh, Duncan was. Uh, Unreal. Although Duncan tells us now, he still was like, I don't know why I hit it first time. When he watches back, he's like, I don't know what I was thinking yeah, in yeah. that first time. But yeah. it's a hell of a finish. And yeah. Takes the roof off the place, but at the same time settles everybody right down. And, and yeah, it's yeah. a really weird goal like that. Yeah, it, yeah. And then obviously a 2-0 victory um, at Falkirk on the final day ensures that automatic relegation is not going to happen. That that fate befalls Dundee United. But it sets up the, the torture of those first ever relegation playoff matches against Dunfermline and Athletic. Was there a lot of confidence, I guess, in the team now going into those playoff games, having gone on that run, we just spoke about Hearts, United, Falkirk, that we could get ourselves out of this? Yeah, but the atmosphere was uh, was brilliant just around the weeks to the Denny United game and then the, the week going to the Dunfermline because we played them first at home. It's really strange because we went to training and there was hardly anyone in Petrodry Street just maybe someone who was lost uh, walking around there. But then you came to the training and then there was there were queues outside. I mean, people were queuing to get tickets. Mm-hmm. For the, first was the, the home game and then the away game. I mean, it was a great feeling. You had to, uh, you had to walk through people uh, to get actually into Petrodry. Uh, so it was great and, and the confidence was good as well. Uh, yeah, that we could do it because we, yeah, we were already written off and then came back from the death. Mm, absolutely. I mean, the atmosphere, as you say, in those, especially that Dunfermline home game as well was was exceptional. I, I remember it really well. Um, both that and the United game were unbelievable. Yeah, it was. And ultimately, the Dons, you know, we merge unscathed. Um, two 3-1 victories, securing a 6-2 aggregate victory, and we preserve our top flight status. Looking back now, and we've spoken you know, to yourself, we've spoken to Ian, Jess, and Duncan Shearer, when you look back at the calibre of player that Aberdeen had, how do you think it was that we found ourselves in that position of actually having to fight a relegation battle? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> if yeah, when you, what I just said before, that is, we should be ashamed that it, uh, that it came uh, that far. You think, well, uh, it won't happen, it won't happen. But then the, the games are running out and you... You, you need something um, to escape uh, the relegation. And I mean, what we just said in the, the second last game of the season, it could have been wrapped up. Eh? That, uh, we beat Hearts in the last minute and then United loses in the last minute. And I said before, we, we, yeah, with the caliber of players we had, yeah, we should be really ashamed uh, that it happened. But on the other hand, at the end, because the story ended well, that um, the excitement we had was was unbelievable in the two, three weeks to uh, the last few games, but it, it shouldn't have happened. It's kind of a cliche among in football when like a big team is at the bottom of the league and the term too good to go down comes out. Was it perhaps an element of that or complacency and just this thinking that we're, we'll get ourselves out of this no bother until, as you say, it came to crunch time and we really needed to, to perform. 
Yeah, and also what you get is then when the team is that low on the table and the other teams are laughing eh, because everybody being successful and they, they would like to put the knife in as well. Uh. So moving into the next campaign, you, you start the season um, clearly is still the number one at, at the club and you play the opening five games of the campaign before you drop out for the League Cup quarterfinal at Motherwell. Um, it takes a while until you get back in the team. It's, it's not until November, a 2-1 defeat at home. And then you retain the place the following week for a victory at Falkirk 3-1. And then in the 1-1 draw at Ibrox on the 11th of November, where Ian scores his famous 45-yarder. Um, you were then dropped out of the team the following week, where Aberdeen fall to a 1-0 defeat at Wraith. And you don't make the squad for the League Cup final against Dundee. Uh, having come back into the team in the weeks running up to the final were you really surprised disappointed shocked to not keep your spot for that Wraith game and then the final itself um, yeah a lot was going on that season eh? that um, yeah that's maybe uh, a wound that had healed over the years so I, I don't want to open it too much that was just political from Roy Aitken he uh, I think he had uh, signals from the the board, yeah, a, there was more a political decision. Obviously, we don't need to talk about this if you if you don't want to, but um, was a reason given to you by Roykin as to why you were not his first choice? Um, not really. And he said, Michael, I've done well, but I must say that I, I, I remember, now you talk about it, I, it comes strings into my again. Yeah, but it was just political that... Uh, Things were going on behind the scenes and uh, I don't want to say too much about it because I had a really good time at Aberdeen and I don't want to make, well, I said the open wound. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to open it. Of course. So you then you end up appearing on the bench for a number of games before a, a surprise. This is obviously pre-transfer um, window era. Um, it's a surprise. £300,000 move to Rangers is announced on the 29th of March, 1996, breaking many, many an Aberdeen fan's heart. Um, can you talk to us about how that move came about? Yeah, well, but that's maybe the open wound. I mean, <laughs> only thing I can say is that um, in the year we were struggling, yeah, nearly got relegated. The board were making also plans already from, yeah, if we got relegated... What we're gonna do with with him? What we're gonna do with him? Because salary-wise, uh, yeah, they, they couldn't afford it to play in the first division with that kind of salary. So they were making plans. This move was already going on a year before, and then the Bosman ruling came, and then Aberdeen was. Yeah, they, I mean, I, I could have gone for nothing uh, in the summer, and then. Uh, I think the, the window was still open till the 1st of April or something. So they were also quite happy to do the move to still get some money. Uh. So it means ultimately that your last game for the club is that 1-1 draw at Ibrox. Life's never perfect, obviously. Um, but do you, do you wish you'd had the opportunity to get a chance for a proper send-off from the fans at Pataudry? I, I must say, I, I, uh, um, we came back with Twente. Uh, in 2013, I think, it was actually... It was Andy's testimonial, wasn't it? No, it was not. Uh, the no. testimonial was later. Oh, yeah. This yeah. was a friendly game. 
That's right, yeah. Like the opening game of the season, uh, before the season starts. Yeah. That f- felt uh, really good to, uh, at halftime, I mean, I was a goalkeeper coach at the club. At halftime, uh, I went on to the pitch to uh, give a wave to the supporters. It was really nice because it was also 25 years ago. Mm. Um, that's sum- uh, 88 summer to 2030, uh, the summer. But no, I mean, I've uh, even, and the thing is to say farewell to supporters, but it's just because of Corona. Usually I'm there every year uh, for, for two or three times. So uh, I don't need a farewell. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you, you end up spending three seasons there, three years at Ibrox, making a total of 18 appearances before you moved back to the Netherlands with uh, MVV Maastricht where you saw your career uh, making 48 appearances for them over two seasons before making a, a playing retirement from the game in 2001 before returning to FC 20 as their goalkeeping coach. Your Aberdeen career ended with you making exactly 290 appearances across all competitions. You left Aberdeen with one League Cup, one Scottish Cup winner's medal, the 1988-89 PFA Players Player of the Year award, and you were inducted into the Aberdeen FC Hall of Fame in 2019 alongside the likes of Doug Rugveen and uh, Eric Black that evening. On reflection, how proud a moment is it for you that you've been recognised amongst, amongst such special players in the history of the club and be part of that exclusive club to be part of that Hall of Fame? Uh, very honoured. Even when we just spoke before that, uh, and that after your career, in your career, you're in a tunnel and then... When you finished, you realized uh, what you have done. But I must say, I always feel so good when I uh, go back to Aberdeen that uh, people speak to you and that they um, are so happy what you did for the club. Um, the good times uh, you gave them, yeah, they give me a, a very satisfying feeling that the people um, recognize that. Yeah makes me really proud and happy uh, and also on the private way. Aberdeen is always in my heart because of both kids, Ryan and Kaylee. Um, uh, Ryan is 28 and Kaylee is 26. They were bo- both born in, uh, in Aberdeen. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud yeah, what I got from the club uh, in, in recognition and uh, but also proud on, yeah, what we what we have achieved with the uh, with the team in the period I was there. Speaking about you personally, Theo, if you had to pick one, what would be your finest or perhaps favorite save you made as an Aberdeen goalkeeper? Oh, yeah, I would say the penalty. That's that's something that you know in your career, even in life, you get really bad moments but looking back then it was all worth it by only making that save <laughs> Theo we'll, we'll wrap things up here we've taken up way more of your time than, than we deserve um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and we'll wrap up with one final question and it's one that we ask all of our guests on the show what does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? A lot, but I think you would say them the way I, in my time, then the say from 
Di Stefano comes back, what he said, and I don't know the exact words, uh, Aberdeen has, but money can't buy family tradition with a team spirit. And yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. When I think about Aberdeen, I think about Alex Smith, Jockey Scott, Drew Jarvie, Teddy Scott. That's, that's the first people uh, who, who spring into my mind uh, who were having um, a really big role in the background, but what's maybe not noticed by all the people, uh, uh, the football players, they would uh, see that, but I think people from the outside won't see that. But yeah, that's the people where you think of first. Well, Theo, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I think I can talk quite confident on behalf of a lot of people when I say that you're absolutely still held in very, very high regard amongst the Aberdeen support for what you what you gave to us through your time here at Aberdeen. So on behalf of us, again, thank you very much for, for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Take care and stand free. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 21, where we'll look back at the SPFL Premiership doubleheader against Livingston and St. Mirren, where the Dons pick up six points from six. Before we preview our trip to McDermott Park for a typical board draw against St. Johnston. And with no women's match to review next week, we'll take our regular look at the young team and Lone Watch. And we'll also bring you the latest in our series of exclusive interviews with Dawn's personalities as we talk with the current Scotland captain as Rachel Corsi joins us to talk about her love of the Dons. And she talks us through her career, both at club and national level, and explains just quite what was going through her head when Argentina rescued a three-goal deficit in that World Cup game. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was sponsored by Hop Shop Aberdeen. Visit the guys in store at the West Hill Service Station or online at hopshopaberdeen.com to browse the finest selection of craft beer in the northeast of Scotland. With over 500 individual lines, you're bound to find something to suit your tastes, and the guys at Hopshop Aberdeen are more than happy to provide you any guidance you might need. Remember to use your discount code ABZPODCAST on any online order for the remainder of the 21-22 season, and receive 10% off your order.